2022. The meeting is being called to order at 4.30 p.m. This meeting is being held in person in City Hall, room 400, and broadcast live on SFGov TV and available to view online or listen to by calling 415-655-0001. As authorized by California Government Code 54953E and Mayor Breed's 45th supplement to her February 25th, 2020 emergency proclamation, it is possible that some members of the Small Business Commission may attend this meeting remotely. In that event, those members will participate in vote by video. The Small Business Commission thanks Media Services and SFGov TV for televising the meeting, which can be viewed on SFGov TV 2 or live streamed at sfgovtv.org. We welcome the public's participation during public comment periods. There will be an opportunity for general public comment at the end of the meeting, and there will be an opportunity to comment on each discussion or action item on the agenda. For each item, the Commission will take public comment first from people attending the meeting in person and then from people attending the meeting remotely. Members of the public calling in, the number is 415-655-0001. The access code is 2499666371. Press pound and then pound again to be added to the line. When connected, you'll be muted and in listening mode only. When your item of interest comes up, dial star three to be added to the speaker line. If you dial star three before public comment is called, you'll be added to the queue. When you are called for public comment, please mute the device that you're listening to the meeting on. When it is your time to speak, you will be prompted to do so. Public comment during the meeting is limited to three minutes per speaker. An alarm will sound once the time has finished. Speakers are requested, but not required to state their names. SFGov TV, please show the Office of Small Business slide. Today we begin with a reminder that the Small Business Commission is the official public forum to voice your opinions and concerns about policies that affect the economic vitality of small businesses in San Francisco. The Office of Small Business is the best place to get answers about doing business in San Francisco during the local emergency. If you need assistance with small business matters, particularly at this time, you can find us online or via telephone. And as always, our services are free of charge. Before item number one is called, I'd like to start by thanking Media Services and SFGovTV for coordinating this virtual hearing and helping to run the meeting. Please call item number one. Item one, roll call. Commissioner Carter is absent. Commissioner Dickerson? Present. Commissioner Herbert? Present. Commissioner Huey is absent. President Laguana? Here. Commissioner Ortiz-Cartagena? Here. Vice President Zunis. Present. President, you have a quorum. Thank you. The San Francisco Small Business Commission and Office of Small Business Staff acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramaytush Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramaytush Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramaytush Ohlone community and by affirming their sovereign rights as first peoples. Item number two, please. Item two, approval of legacy business registry applications and resolutions. This is a discussion and action item. The commission will discuss and possibly take action to approve legacy business registry applications. And today we have 
Rick Carrillo, Legacy Business Manager, presenting. Hello, Rick. Good afternoon, President Laguana, Vice President Zuzunas, Commissioners, City Staff, members of the public. I'm Richard Carrillo, Legacy Business Program Manager. I would like to acknowledge Michelle Reynolds, who helps with the Legacy Business Program and with marketing and communications for the Office of Small Business. Michelle was instrumental in helping review, collate, and process the Legacy Business Registry applications before you today. SFGovTV, I have a PowerPoint presentation. Before you today are four applications for your consideration for the Legacy Business Registry. Each application includes a staff report, a draft resolution, the application itself, and documents from the planning department. The applications were submitted to planning on September 21st and heard by the Historic Preservation Commission on October 19th. Item 2A is Black and Blue Tattoo. The business, founded in 1995, was the first women-owned tattoo parlor in San Francisco. Black and Blue Tattoo has been female and queer run since its inception and has been well regarded, a gender inclusive tattoo studio that provides itself on being welcoming to all, especially marginalized communities such as lesbians and queer women. The business has a solid reputation for treating their clients right and features up to 10 artists with a range of styles and specialties. Black and Blue Tattoo has hosted art openings featuring their own artists as well as artists from around the community. Black and Blue Tattoo does not currently have a lease with the landlord and the business is currently at risk of displacement. The business believes the landlord is agreeable to a 10-year lease if there were incentives in place for doing so. Getting listed on Legacy Business Registry would assist Black and Blue Tattoo in securing a long-term lease so they may continue their work within the community. The core feature tradition the business must maintain to remain on the Legacy Business Registry is Tattoo Shop. Item 2B is the Condor. The business is an adult entertainment venue in the North Beach neighborhood established in 1958. The business was a trailblazing promoter of topless dancing in the 1960s and has remained a fixture of the city's nightlife to this day. Originally a neighborhood tavern, the Condor underwent a major renovation in 1961 when it expanded into the adjacent storefront and erected an elevated stage for performances. The business quickly became a popular venue for live music and dance. In 1964, performer Carol Dota made international headlines when she performed topless, helping to launch an era of topless entertainment that swept across North Beach and the nation. In 1965, the San Francisco Police Department and agents of the ABC raided the Condor and other San Francisco topless clubs. Carol was arrested for indecent exposure and Condor owners were arrested for running a disorderly house. The Condor owners formed the Broadway Businessmen's Association to work collaboratively to defend artistic expression. They prevailed in court and the landmark legal victory established that topless dancing did not violate obscenity laws, setting an important case precedent related to censorship and cementing San Francisco's reputation as a city that celebrates freedom of expression. Today, the Condor continues to honor its pioneering legacy in the entertainment industry and is a popular choice for birthday bachelor and bachelorette parties, attracting tourists, conventioneers, office workers, and curiosity seekers. The business is also active in the North Beach community. The core feature tradition the business must maintain is bar. Item 2C is New Lunting Cafe. 
The business is a family-owned restaurant established in 1930 that specializes in Chinese-American cuisine. New Lun Ting Cafe offers stir-fry items such as chow mein and chow fun, chicken sandwiches, pot stickers, grilled fish, hamburger steaks, macaroni noodles, and more. Traditional menu items include pork chops, roast pork or lamb with a choice of sauces, as well as oxtail or beef tongue with rice or spaghetti, cabbage, and corn. In 1989, New Lun Ting Cafe changed ownership and its interior was redesigned to be more inclusive. The addition of booths and tables provided a welcoming environment for families and couples. Distinctive features of the business's exterior include running awning, red framed windows, and a red framed entryway. Above the entrance, there is a sign that spans the frontage and the corner that contains the business's logo, pork chop house, and writing in Chinese and English. The core featured tradition the business must maintain is restaurant featuring, featuring Chinese cuisine. Item 2D is Royal Bakery. The business is a bakery established in 1925, originally in the North Beach neighborhood, but after 1935 had relocated to its present location in the Excelsior District. Royal Bakery is known for its quality variety of classic French and Italian breads and pastries. The business is located in a landmark building, which is known for its distinctive Art Deco design and usage of two large double brick Dutch ovens that have been in service since 1935. In addition, the murals on the outside of the building are well known to residents of the Excelsior neighborhood. The core feature tradition the business must maintain is bakery. Before we continue, I'm going to provide a refresher on the Small Business Commission's role with regard to listing businesses on the Legacy Business Registry. Administrative Code Section 2A242B reads, for purposes of this section, legacy business means a business that has been nominated by a member of the Board of Supervisors or the Mayor, and that the Small Business Commission, after a noticed hearing, determines meets each of the following criteria. Number one, the business is operated in San Francisco for 30 or more years. With no break in San Francisco operations exceeding two years. The business may have operated in more than one location. If the business is operated in San Francisco for more than 20 years, but less than 30 years, it may still satisfy this subsection if the Small Business Commission finds that the business has significantly contributed to the history or identity of a particular neighborhood or community, and if not included in the registry, the business would face a significant risk of displacement. Number two, the business has contributed to the neighborhood's history and or the identity of a particular neighborhood or community. Prior to the hearing, the Small Business Commission or the Executive Director of the Office of Small Business on its behalf shall request an advisory recommendation from the Historic Preservation Commission as to whether the business meets the requirement in this subsection. If the Historic Preservation Commission does not provide an advisory recommendation within 30 days of receipt of the request, the Small Business Commission shall treat such non-response as an advisory recommendation that the business meets the requirement in this subsection. Number three, the business is committed to maintaining the physical features or tradition that define the business, including craft, culinary, or art forms. If the Small Business Commission makes all three findings, it shall include the business in the registry as a legacy business. The Condor had a slightly different path forward than the other three applications. 
On October 19th, HPC did not vote on the condor's application, but instead continued it to their November 2nd meeting. Prior to their decision, I explained that their non-response by October 21st, which was 30 days, would be considered an advisory recommendation. They understood. At the November 2nd HPC meeting, Commissioner Nagaswaran read a statement and made the following motion. To recommend approval of the Condor for the Legacy Business Registry with the stipulation that the Condor include a statement of commitment within the nomination with the progressive timeline to provide for training and promotion of women, especially those that are, that are at the core of the business model incorporating the recommendations of the HPC, Department on the Status of Women, and the Small Business Commission. The motion was not seconded by any of the other five commissioners in attendance. At least two commissioners stated that the items in the motion were not within the purview of the Historic Preservation Commission. They did not feel it was appropriate for the HPC to suggest how a business should operate and that such a motion would open up a Pandora's box with regard to other legacy business regist registry applications. HPC then approved recommendation of the Condor's application to the Small Business Commission with the condition that they send a recording of their conversation about the Condor to the SBC and the Commission on the Status of Women. The SBC received that information, I believe, from the SBC Commission Secretary last week. That all said, staff, uh, all four businesses met the three criteria required for listing on the Legacy Business Registry and all four received a positive recommendation from the Historic Preservation Commission. Legacy Business Program staff recommends adding the businesses to the registry and has drafted four resolutions for your consideration. A motion in support of the businesses should be framed as a motion in favor of the resolutions. Thank you. This concludes our presentation. We're happy to answer any questions. And I know there are businesses representatives in the room, quite a few probably, um, and possibly online who'd like to speak on behalf of the applications during public comment. Great. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, for the members of the public who haven't visited before, we're going to check in with the commissioners, see if they have any comments or questions. Once we're done with that, then we'll go to public comment. Uh, commissioners, do we have any comments or questions? Okay. Um, I had occasion to become familiar with remarks made at the Historical Preservation Committee commission meeting regarding one of our legacy business nominees. I understand the remarks were made by just one commissioner and do not reflect the intent of the body, but I did want to take a moment and respond. We appreciate that the Historical Preserv Preservation Commission, uh, uh, we appreciate them and, and will always welcome any input the commission may have to offer about the physical attributes of the business nominated for the registry. This is what the law asks us to consider from the Historical Preservation Commission. The law that created the Legacy Business Program only allows us to consider the following criteria, whether the business has operated in San Francisco for 30 or more years with no break uh, in operations exceeding two years, whether the business has contributed to the neighborhood's history and, or identity of a particular neighborhood or community, and whether the business is committed to maintaining the physical features or traditions that define that business, including craft, culinary, and art forms. If our commission determines the business meets these three criteria, we are required to include the business in the registry. We, as a commission or as individual commissioners, uh, 
do not have the legal authority to establish our own separate criteria. But even if we did have that authority, we could not execute it without running afoul of our role under the city charter. Voters created this body to be the champions of small business, not the critics. We serve as a counterweight to governmental processes that can sometimes unintentionally lose sight of how valuable our small businesses are to our community, our culture, and our economy. When criticism is necessary, the city has numerous departments and agencies whose role it is to investigate and adjudicate any violations of law. They have the resources to conduct these functions fairly and with due process. We do not. And that is not our role. Our role is a positive one, and we do this with a positive mindset. We are here to celebrate and help our city's small businesses, and we strive to make them better through support, encouragement, and advocacy. So we appreciate the role that the Historical Preservation Commission plays in the Legacy Business Program, and we look forward to continuing our work with them in the future. And with that, we'll hear public comment. If people want to line up for public comment along the sidewall here and then come up to the mic, that would be great. And you're not required to state your name, but if you would like to, that would be great. Please. Best way to turn the uh, overhead on. Commissioners, good evening. As a member of a third generation San Francisco small business family, I commend you for what you do. I see an old friend as past three-time president of the Mission Merchants Association. I commend you for what you do. And I am extremely proud to be here tonight to speak on behalf of the Condor, having grown up in San Francisco in the 60s. I think President uh, Laguna, you said that you're required to vote if we meet the three criteria. Number one, 30 years, 64 years, founded in 1958. Number two, has it had an influence on its neighborhood? It's the flagship of Broadway and off-Broadway. Over two dozen clubs went topless after the Condor was the first in the United States to go topless. I would say that has some influence. And then the third, are they still in the business that they originally were in? I would qualify that and say Not only are they in the business, they're still the best in the business. Who says so? The readership of the Bay Guardian last month. With that, I rest my case. Thank you ever so much, commissioners. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, commissioners. My name is Dr. Alex Letnick. I am thrilled to be here speaking on behalf of the Condor. 
Over the past 20 years, my work here in San Francisco has focused on people working in adult entertainment, including folks who do sex trades. I've conducted public health outreach to all of the strip clubs in San Francisco. I've done peer-based harm reduction counseling, led community-based participatory research, and oversaw and supervised the studies of graduate students. And I like to root us in history. So the United States has a long history of debating the dangers of all forms of dance. Up until the mid-1950s, for example, ballet was stigmatized and associated with people considered to be on the fringes of acceptable society. Titillation by and hostility to dance continues in the present day, especially in response to exotic dance. Now, despite some people's opposition to this form of dance, the club, the Condor, is an integral component of a vibrant nighttime economy, and adult establishments play an important role and have a place in modern community. Then Chief of Protocol of San Francisco, Charlotte Schultz, got this when she was reflecting on the death of Carol Dota. She said she changed Broadway and made news around the world. People said only in San Francisco, and we didn't mind people saying that. Now at the Condor, I think it's important to remember you have folks of all genders and sexualities who are the patrons. And among the entertainers, you have cisgender women, non-binary and genderqueer folks. You have heterosexuals, lesbians, bisexuals, pansexuals, queer individuals. And the research nerd in me really wants to share with you all of the methodologically rigorous studies that have been done. There's not time for that. So what I'll say is some of the work that I've done here in San Francisco reflects the larger literature and larger nationwide findings, which finds that dancers report liking the money they make, the financial freedom that comes with it, the exercise, the fun of their performance, friendships they build with other entertainers, club staff and patrons, learning transferable skills, and for some, the ability to explore their sexual expression. Now, some people, particularly second-wave feminists who have never worked at the clubs, either as dancers or in other roles, will promote the idea that the women in the clubs are exploited and oppressed. But when we listen to the voices of dancers, we hear a different narrative. Just like most people work out of economic necessity, the same is true for dancers. Within the economic opportunities accessible to them, most view their choice to dance as one comparable to that of a models and actors or an athletes, where they earn a living using their bodies. For most, dancing is a temporary position that allows them to achieve other career or personal goals. And research done over the past 15 years has showed that the rate of education has been increasing among dancers, which is indicative of uh, it's something they're doing to further a situation or meet ambitions. To wrap up, here's the thing, though. Even if folks didn't go on to other professions, their work as dancers is valuable and a legacy worthy of recognition a legacy that connects them to all who have come before and all who will continue on in their footsteps. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hi, my name's uh, Joe Karuba. I'm the owner of the Condor. Uh, I wanna thank the board, uh, Mark, his staff, the entertainers, everybody that came today to support uh, Condor. A little background. I've been in business in San Francisco uh, since 1976. I started my first small business. A little um, donut shop called Happy Donuts on 3rd and King. And it's, that's kind of the place I, I learned that if you were going to make money in a community, you need to give back. And I worked closely with Delancey Street that was right down the street. And I think uh, Mimi said at one point 
that we fed them with our donuts and sandwiches for about two years while they were getting off the ground. So uh, we always felt it's very important, all the, work, all the businesses that we've had, that we give back to the community that we're in. Uh, so some of the Condor's contributions is the formation of a nonprofit called BECA, the Broadway Entertainment Cultural Association. And we used to, we funded that for years, and we used that for street cleaning, uh, for nighttime security, uh, beautification projects. That eventually uh, ended up turning into the formation of the Top of Broadway, which is with a community benefit district uh, in the Broadway area. Uh, we've, we worked with Marcia Garland. I don't know if anybody remembers her. She was a, she was a fantastic woman, good friend of mine with the North Beach Chamber. Um, we've worked uh, for many years since the, its formation with North Beach Citizens, which is a homeless group that provides uh, services um, to people in North Beach. Um, we've also raised money and toys for the firefighters toy programs for the last 25 years. Um, so there's more, but I, I just wanna, I'm gonna run out of time. I, I want to just uh, talk a little bit about the historical significance of the Condor. And I think it's really, it's difficult to measure. Uh, it really was a transition point in this country between uh, burlesque and striptease. And it actually, it changed, it changed a, an industry um, at Carol Dota. Um, and, but more than that, you know, locally, if you pull the string from the Condor, it'll take you all the way back to the Barbary Coast. It'll take you back to international settlement, which was the original entertainment uh, neighborhood in San Francisco. So, so for a lot of reasons, the Condor is at kind of an apex for San Francisco and nationally. Anyway, there's more, but I run out of time. So listen, thanks a lot, you guys. You're doing uh, great work here. I appreciate it. Thank thanks. you, Joe. Next speaker, please. Hello, my name is Adexa Stern. I'm, I'm the owner of Black and Blue Tattoo, and I'm really happy to be here and excited of the, for the prospect of being part of the San Francisco Legacy business registration. Um, my landlord came today, and some of our clients, and some of our artists, which is wonderful, different people than last time came. Uh, last time I had one of my first apprentices show up um, who has their own business now as a continuation of uh, women-owned tattoo shops that now are not unusual in San Francisco anymore. Uh, we were the first ones, and it was very exciting to offset the very male-dominated dom business. And it really has changed a lot, and uh, we're just here now with less force and a, a relaxation within our almost 30 years and it's been uh, very uh, rewarding to have this history of people who have come through the shop and I wouldn't have been able to develop it, grow it, hold on to it during COVID without all the people who have supported Black and Blue Tattoo. And I'm really thankful and thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, 
I'm Jack Nelson from Oakland, California, and I'll allude to that at the end of my brief talk here. Um, I'm a patron at Condor occasionally, and uh, many are my friends, and the business has run really well. I've been in education about 32 years, and in some ways it's run much better and better for uh, the women and the servers there than in many schools I've worked at. Not my current school, which is Fremont I in Oakland, but uh, very, very well done. Um, what I would say is this. Um, what many don't know is Carol Dota lived in Oakland. She lived in the Oakland Hills right around the corner from me as a teenager. And I'd heard about her. You know, I hadn't gone in there, obviously. But uh, um, we would wave at her, and she would drive by with dark glasses in her sedan. And uh, she'd wave back once in a while. But we gave her the respect. And I'm open tonight that you give that you give the condor respect and uh, make it an historical landmark. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, my name is Warren Chin. Um, when I had heard about this hearing, I was actually surprised that uh, the condor had not already been designated as a legacy business. Uh, I know that growing up here in San Francisco, even as a teenager, I knew about the history of the Condor as the first topless club in the U.S., and I even know, knew who, who Carol Dota was, although I never, I never did get to see her, but uh, I wasn't old enough to see her before she retired. But in any case, uh, the Condor was the first gentleman's club that I ever attended, uh, that I ever visited, you know, when I was finally old enough to do so. But, uh, you know, since that time, I've been there many times for bachelor parties, birthday celebrations. And in that time, uh, I've come to know a lot of the staff and the management. And, uh, you know, I, I've always been impressed with their professionalism and their uh, hospitality. They've always made me feel welcome. Even when I'm in North Beach going to a restaurant or something, I'll stop by and say hi. But, you know, while the entertainers are the main attraction, you know, I would, it would be remiss if I didn't mention that the staff and the management there do a great job. So I think that, you know, they, they're well deserving of legacy business status in this city. Thank you. Hello. The amount of time I've spent on a stage and talking to people one-on-one, -on -one, I wasn't expecting to be so nervous in front of folks. <laughs> I've been at the Condor since 2008. This work has given me the financial freedom to independently and confidently walk away from difficult situations, learn new skills, and build new careers. I was able to pour a lot into my mental health for a time, which was really life-altering um, without needing any assistance. The non-traditional schedule allowed me to put myself first daily, create a work-life balance, travel, and have experiences that I may not have had otherwise. I've been given the opportunity to hold space for people struggling through hard times, listen to stories they were too afraid to tell anybody else, and been told my words and ideas saved relationships. I've had the pleasure of working with such a diversity of women and customers with varieties of backgrounds, lifestyles, and stories. It's been really created much more well-rounded person in me, which is great. I can pass that around to other people around me. I am always in control of how I work and who I work with, 
and I would 100% take the same path if given the choice to start over. So thank you. Hello, hello. I'm Joey Felder. I'm one of the managers at Condor. And there's some things I want you to know about Condor. What makes it a special place? As you see behind me, Condor is well represented. We have a lot of employees in, in all areas, the entertainers, the bartenders, the waitresses. We have former employees. We have a lot of our guests that are regulars that are really part of the Condor family. We have a vendor here that, that we buy product from for, for our business, and he's here. People care about this place. In, Nor in North Beach, it is definitely an important part of the community. After we reopened the shutdown, people were coming up to the door and saying, oh, thank God you reopened. We were so worried we'd go back. We, we don't want North Beach without, without Condor. And, and being a manager in Condor, and I, and I live in, in, in North Beach, um, I walk the streets to work every day. And when you're manager of Condor, you're like, kind of like a pseudo celebrity. There are people that know me that I have no idea who they are. And not a week goes by where somebody goes, hey, Joey, I got a story from when, in 1983, I went to Condor and this happened, or someone else took a story, and they're so excited to share this moment of their, their a past experience of Condor that meant something to them. Condor means something to the community. And you might ask, something people will come by from out of state and they'll say, so what is this place? Why should we come here and not another place? Well, my background was television, as a broadcast executive for years, and I worked at NBC, and I say, think of the television show Cheers and make it a strip club, and that's what we do. Thank you. You know, Joey, I trained you well, buddy. <laughs> you took everything that I was gonna say and said it. So, Joey is my assistant. I'm, my name is Mark, I'm the general manager of Condor. I've been the general manager since 2013. Really cannot speak on what, Joey, I mean, what he said is the truth. Condor has always been a special part of North Beach. And I could only imagine how special it's been since 1958, since it opened up. But one of the things that have been mentioned that has not been mentioned is Condor is for everyone. Condor does comedy shows. Condor does ballet shows. We support all groups such as LBG, LBGTQ, as well as we have events for them as well. We're for everyone. And Condor has been like that since the beginning. I've had the pleasure to sit down with Pete and Gino, the former owners of Condor back in the 60s when all the historical events were taking place. And I can't tell you the stories that they had for me as I started to learn more and more about Condor. And then having the opportunity to work for Mr. Karuba and others have helped all of us. Back to, as you see, about 25 former employees and staffs from every ethnic background. His support has helped us all just grow. So for me, I don't think there's any question about Condor being given the historic legacy business status. Just look behind you and you'll see why. And that's just from the last 10 years. Imagine all the people who are around from the beginning. So thank you very much. Good afternoon, commissioners. Uh, my name is Mel Flores. 
Um, I work with the Excelsior Action Group, and I also live in the Excelsior as well. And I'm here to speak about Royal Bakery. But, you know, having heard what I just heard, I just would like to mention that Royal Bakery um, originated in North Beach, <laughs> and that their delicious um, bread and other products are still available at many restaurants and, <laughs> and delis there. So uh, anyway, I just want to let you know how much um, we uh, value and appreciate uh, having the Royal Bakery in our community uh, and being able to um, purchase directly from them their delicious um, products uh, without having to travel to North Beach or, or other um, restaurants um, and uh, delis in the Bay Area. So um, they struggled quite a bit during um, the closure uh, for COVID and would really benefit greatly from uh, the legacy uh, status. So I would urge you to please approve uh, their legacy business registry. Thank you so much. Hi, uh, my name is Stephen Ma, and I'm speaking on behalf of my mom, Francis, who owns and runs a New Lantern Cafe at the Pork Chop House. Um, when my grandfather started the restaurant over 50 years ago now, um, he did what he did when he left China with his family. Um, he saw an opportunity to improve not only his life, but the life of his family as well. And through hard work and toil, he built that restaurant up from what it was. Um, and though it initially started out as a bachelor cafe, mostly serving single men in the, Chi in the Chinatown area with a U-shaped counter just for single seating, um, eventually over time when my mom took it over, she made it more inclusive by making it more of a family-style restaurant that served not only single people, but the families of Chinatown and San Francisco at large. And for myself and lots of other San Franciscans, in particular Chinese Americans who grew up in San Francisco, our childhood is associated with that restaurant and all of the food and comfort food that was made there with love and genuine care. Um, and that restaurant is more than just the bricks in the building or the plastic sleeve menus that get passed around still or the rice plates that get served with great care and attention every single day. Um, it stands as a testament to the hard work that went into achieving the American dream achieved through multiple generations of hard work and dedication. So um, I encourage everybody to please uh, accept this restaurant as a legacy business. Thank you. Do we have any public comment online? We do not. Okay. Commissioners, do you have any comments or questions? Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena. I want to first thank everybody here for coming. I know being an operator of a small business at this time is a hard time to come, so that just shows the commitment and how you represent San Francisco, Frisco, the Bay. I love it. Look at us all around. You know, only here in this part of the world can we have this kind of flavor. Joe, Joey, Mark, you know, my first business was out of North Beach. I had the privilege to meet Carol when she used their whole court in various locations, you know, in North Beach. And, you know, when with the guys we get off, we go to your joint, right? And not, not necessarily for show, but just to decompress, get a smile, you know, get a nice cold drink. And, and, and just decompress. And that's Frisco. That's hospitality. That's love. You know, um, Royal Bakery, you know, that just shows, you know, how inclusive we are, how, how we don't let cultures divide us. Italian ownership started it. 
Latino ownership continues it, right? It's a staple in the neighborhood. I go get coffee there every morning, you know, with some pancito. And um, black and blue, you know, you're from the neighborhood, and you started that joint when the neighborhood wasn't this gentrified mission. You know, you were out there in the 90s when, you know, we used to rock and roll out there. So, you know, that just shows your commitment to the neighborhood. So I just want to honor everybody here because you make San Francisco what it is, and I appreciate all y'all. So thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Dickerson. Uh, I want to first just give honor. I, whenever you're in business, I'm a small business owner here in San Francisco, so I've had a taste of it. But to, first of all, it's an honor, and probably our favorite part of being on the commission is to celebrate businesses who have been going for 20, 30 years. Um, I, it's one thing I, I just got to do. I got to get it out of me. Hey, yo, Joey. <laughs> I feel like, I, I, you know, he talked about cheers, you know, everybody, you know, I just wanted to say, Joey, <laughs> you're making me want to come to the Condor. <laughs> everybody needs a Joey. Uh, but I just want to say uh, that uh, the Condor black and blue tattoo by the way, black and blue tattoo, my hat goes off to you. I'm an all-woman business owner and in a male-dominant field as health and wellness, personal training, you know, weight loss, that thing. And so I, I can relate with you. I just want to say thank you for being an example to us business owners and all-women business owners. I celebrate you. And um, the, the New Long Ting Cafe, I'm coming. Royal Bakery, I'm coming. <laughs> You know what it's like to own a small business. You can't get out. You're in, you live at your work. So when I'm not working, I'm coming to you. But I just want to say thank you so much for being amazing examples. We need you uh, to continue to uh, do what you do best, and that is be consistent, persevere, and show us how to do it. Thank you. I just want to say real quick, thank you all for being here. Um, I think this shows a lot of testament to the Legacy Business Program itself, our amazing staff, um, who I know are hands-on with the applicants and really, really care about small businesses being rewarded for their legacy. Um, thank you to my commissioners and, um, you know, for, for emulating what, you know, you have all said to us tonight, um, yeah, uh, fam family and generational business is, is what keeps this city so special, and it's our absolute honor to have you before us um, today, and thanks for all the brave people who came and spoke public comment. I know it's not easy sometimes, um, even when you feel so strongly about something, but having a packed room tonight um, makes us, you know, feel good about, about making these decisions, so thank you. Uh, for showing up. So. Thank you, Vice President Zasunas and Commissioner Herbert. I just want to say this is such a feel-good evening tonight. Thank you all for coming. I'm a business owner, too, and I understand what hard work it is. And uh, I just love seeing all the diversity in the room. And I salute all of you, and thank you for 
just making us this fabulous melting pot of businesses that we are in San Francisco. So I salute you guys too. Thank you. Thank you. So um, I want to join my fellow commissioners first in, in thanking all of the nominees um, for all of your contributions to the city, uh, for everything you do that gives us culture, gives us vibrancy, makes us not like the rest of America. Uh, I'm very grateful to Black and Blue Tattoo and New Lung Ting Cafe and, and Royal Bakery. But uh, tonight, I, I, I think just because of the history of this, I, I want to talk for just a second how particularly proud I am of the Condor and how grateful I am to be here tonight. Uh, you know, I, uh, I'm a former entertainer myself. I know you up here you see a guy in a suit, but when I moved here, I was sleeping under park benches. And I dated some dancers, quite a few actually. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if I would be here without them because they made a lot more money than I did. <laughs> and I'm very... Uh, I, I learned a lot from uh, being with them, and, and, um, and I'm happapily married now, uh, tw 20 plus years, and now I run a business, so they're, you know, I mean, people grow. Uh, but I, I, I think the thing that, that's coming up for me here, you know, the most is I am now in my fourth year of serving on this commission. Um, we get a lot of legacy business uh, nominees. As, as Commissioner Dickerson mentioned, it's, it's our pleasure and, and our honor to be in the position of uh, uh, sanctioning their, their entry in, into the legacy business program. But uh, what I'm really struck by is how many of you all came out, not just the managers, not just the owners, but the employees, the former employees, a customer, two customers, I think, came up and, and spoke. Five customers. Five? All right now. Okay. <laughs> um, vendors, holy smokes. <laughs> we don't see that a lot up here. And that shows people really connected and loved and love your business. And so this commission, in this commission, we love and support you back. So uh, with that, it is my honor to make the motion to uh, approve all of the nominees for the Legacy Business Commission. Can I have a second? Oh, I'll second. Seconded by Vice President Suzunas. And I can't Kathleen Dooley, in memory of Kathleen Dooley. In memory of former Small Business Commissioner Kathleen Dooley, who would undoubtedly would fully approve. <laughs> uh, I'll read the roll. Commissioner Carter is absent. Commissioner Dickerson. Yes. Commissioner Herbert. Yes. Commissioner Huey's absent. President Laguana. Oh, yes. Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena. Yes. And Vice President Zizunas. Yes. Motion passes. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you all. We appreciate you. Next item, please. <laughs>
card is going to freak out right Retreat location. Item three, Board of Supervisors. Item three, Board of Supervisors, file number 220971, planning code, gates, railings, and grill work exceptions for <laughs> cannabis retail uses and existing non-residential uses. This is a discussion and action item. Tonight, we have uh, the commission will discuss and possibly take action on an ordinance amending the planning code to exempt certain existing gates, railings, and grill work at non-residential uses from transparency requirements subject to the provisions for non-complying structures and exempt cannabis retail uses from transparency requirements for gates, railings, and grill work for a three-year period. Presenting tonight, we have Jeff Buckley, legislative aide to Supervisor Safai. Hi, Jeff. Hi, commissioners. Looks uh, like you're tough. losing your crowd, but <laughs> it's a tough act to follow. <laughs> That was amazing, though. It's really here. It's it's great to be here for all of those presentations, and in particular the one from the Excelsior. Yeah. Um, so if you haven't had the opportunity to go to Royal Bakery and get some <coughs> some of their goods, it's it's amazing. Um, so I'm here before you uh, to uh, present an ordinance that amends the planning code to exempt cannabis retail uses from transparency requirements for gates, railings, and grill work. So this ordinance really came um, out of discussions with the cannabis retail industry. Um, this ordinance allows these businesses to use, you know, what we call roll-up gates as a means of protecting themselves from break-ins or robbery. The ordinance also acknowledges that our city has businesses with existing gates, railings, and grill work that do not conform to existing transparency requirements. So this ordinance subjects those to provisions for non-compliant structures. Um, so, as I mentioned, this really came out of discussions that they had with concerns with the operational functions of scissor gates, uh, being able to really protect them um, from robberies in particular, and that the security gates that the, the planning code provides for were not adequate enough uh, to meet their needs. Um, they, were, they had concerns that the city was prioritizing aesthetics um, over public safety and leaving them as targets on commercial corridors. And we were not only hearing that from both the cannabis retail industry, we're also hearing it from other small businesses that were on the corridor. So we see this legislation as both uh, being impactful for those individual businesses, but also being impactful for the corridors in which those businesses uh, are cited. And so as a planner, Supervisor Safai know, knows that we, use, we can use our planning code to enhance public safety and to really take away crimes of opportunity. Um, and so this ordinance uh, does that, um, but it also um, does add some requirements um, that the business remove the roll-up gates uh, when it vacates the business address, uh, that ultimately they can't have the gates down when they're not in operation, which, you know, seems logical, but in some instances there may be times where those gates would come down. They need to be up when the business is, is open. Um, and so we believe that these uh, enhancements will protect small businesses, um, from crime, and we're really interested in hearing from you um, about the ordinance. And so with that, um, I'll step away and uh, be really looking forward to hearing your feedback. Great. Uh, commissioners, any questions or comments? Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena. Thank you for the presentation. And, and just thank you. This is like common sense stuff. And sometimes, you know, in this city, that common sense stuff is so hard to come up with. I appreciate you and the supervisor. I mean, they need this, and all the other stuff is just silliness. So thank you.
for bringing this up and taking care of this. Thank you. <coughs> Vice President Sazunas. Thank you. Uh, thank you for coming and explaining uh, this uh, proposal to us. Also think it's, it's common sense and something we've heard definitely since before the pandemic as an issue with um, planning code and, and protective gates. So I'm glad that we're starting to look for solutions. Um, I had a question about the planning code. If you can answer it, that's great. If not, we can maybe find out more later. But um, because the 77% transparency requirement, um, I've heard it as an issue with window coverings as well, not just the gate. So um, does it apply to businesses as they're opened or like all the time? It doesn't, it doesn't matter if, because this is talking about it, um, the gate um, being all the way down when it's closed and you're making an allowance for it to also be potentially partly covering or covering while the business is open. So my question is, where does the planning code actually require the 75% transparency? Is it at all times? So as I understand it, the 75% requirement is for when the gate is, is put into place. So my understanding would be that would be when the business is closed. So in, you know, when the business is open, it would be the, the security gate would be removed and it would be, you know, um, more, um, more access for, for customers and, and, and people accessing the business. So it's really about when it's, when, when the business is, is um, after hours, what they're using for their security features. Mm -hmm. Just because I, I know that um, other businesses retail establishments that have, you know, advertisements and other things on their, their windows have been um, also impacted by, by this, by this um, planning code. So I, I love that we're looking to solve for one industry's experience with this code, but I know that it's one that also um, a lot of people in, in the small business world face. So I'm just curious, um, you know, if, if there's still potential conversation we can have with the planning department from here um, and, and make sure maybe see if, so, if the office is interested in um, discussing with other cash businesses that face similar issues that aren't grandfathered in by this or aren't in the cannabis industry. But to answer your question, Commissioner, so we, you know, after, I think these are issues we thought about prior to introduction, but we certainly have heard from the small business community, you know, after we introduced the legislation to say, what do you, you know, what about other, you know, uh, businesses on a commercial corridor? Um, it, truthfully, we, we, we responded to the cannabis retail industry within this legislation yeah. um, primarily, but now we're hearing from member, other members of the community about it. And so I would say we're open mm -hmm. um, to having those discussions. It's certainly why we're here, you know, that's why great. I'm here talking with you is that we want to hear from you about whether that's something you think would be helpful for uh, the small business community. Um, we've done outreach to the fire department. We certainly have done, we've talked with the planning department. 
I think you know the planning department um, has strong feelings around the aesthetic quality of of having greater transparency on our commercial corridor. The fire department raised concerns about um, having um, no transparency whatsoever on roll down gates and um, how that could potentially impede rescue operations yeah. from an operational standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, those are ongoing discussions. Um, I engaged with the fire marshal on those and I'd have to say the conversation has been great so far. A lot of flexibility from the fire department about how we can pursue something that kind of works. Uh, potentially for all of the small business community. So that's something we are open to. We are having some of those discussions, but we haven't made a decision yet to to um, go beyond just cannabis retail and non-complying uses. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so the types of gates, the, the grill work gates, um, I, mean, I feel like I have seen, I've seen them in other neighborhoods and I feel like I've seen newer ones too. So I'm just trying to understand like where, you know, if some neighborhoods are being more, um, you know, if, if planning code or who is the enforcement body, would it be DPW that goes, like if they see a, a gate that's out of compliance, like who, who would be the one to actually be like, hey, business, you're, this isn't the right gate? So it depends. I mean, I think there's been a lack of clarity around yeah. these particular inf- issues. So. Yeah. What I would say is this ordinance clarifies it, that you would be required to basically pull, if you're a cannabis retail business, you'd be required to pull a building permit within three years after the effective date of the ordinance. And if you don't pull, um, you know, if you don't pull a permit within that period of time, then you would basically be subject to enforcement actions. And so we are clarifying that this would require a, you know, a, um, a, you know, a building permit, thus the Department of Building Inspection, I think would be the likely okay. um, department that would do the enforcement of that. Okay. But it's been a bit of a great point. Um, right, right, because I'm just trying to recount like when we've gotten inquiries being like, hey, planning won't approve my gate, I don't know what kind of gate to get, yeah. you know, so I'm just trying to think of like how this is gonna, uh, you know, play out uniformly um, with the enforcement piece of it. But and, and I should, you know, yeah. the planning department also would be, you know, have its enforcement capacities on this as well, uh-huh. considering it's a planning code amendment, so. Uh-huh. Okay, but yeah, very, very interesting. Glad um, you all are, are finding some dialogue with, with the departments on this, thank you. Yeah, I think from, you know, Supervisor Safai's standpoint, it's important to kind of push so that we can have better public safety for our small business community, so. Uh, did you want to? Well, you, you had your name earlier, but yeah. you took it off. I didn't know if you wanted. No, that's okay. I, I was just going to add that cannabis clubs are targets for vandalism, and you know, and I fully support the idea of them having um, the ability to have the gates. And I think if it's an aesthetic issue, uh, business owners could be required to maintain it or keep it up, or you know, I, I feel like that's really <clears throat> a pretty simple fix. So. I, I totally support. So thanks Great. for coming out. Yeah. Thank you. So um, <clears throat> you mentioned having conversations with fire. What, what are the concerns they're raising with you? Uh, or what, what, what's the, the basis for the concern, I guess? And then how is that being addressed or ameliorated? 
So I think initially they had concerns about um, firefighters being able to access a role, you know, a completely non-transparent gate. Um, but I think we were able to work through those issues, or I should say the fire department is. I think they have measures available to them to be able to access to cut down through gates to get to get into those areas if there was a fire. But they did mention the idea that they want um, their firefighters to be able to see in so that they're aware if there's smoke or if there's something visually important to them so that when they're assessing how to enter a, a small business, if, it, if there is a fire there, that they want to be able to have some visual representation into that small business area. And okay. so that, that seemed to, you know, that resonates with us certainly. Um, and you know, appreciative also of the fire department not saying it's 30 or 40 or whatever, but wanting to work with us to kind of come up with what that, uh, what that number would be. What's, what's the advantage of opacity uh, versus 75% transparent? Or uh, say, like, what, what would be the advantage of a gate versus a grill? Well, I think... With when you say like a gate being like the roll down gate that we, we would be allowing compared to a grill, well, or so it, it allows something that's completely opaque, uh, you know, presumably a, a roll down gate or a metal gate. And I feel like I've seen a lot of those in, in, in the city, so I, I guess it wasn't clear to me that that wasn't already allowed, but uh, I'm, I'm just wondering what is it about. Well, I guess we'll get into the cannabis specificity in a minute, but um, what, what it, like, say, if, you know, if you could imagine a grill with, uh, you know, some kind of translucent plastic behind it. Um, why would a opaque solution be superior to something like that? I would say it's not... As I understand it, it's not a question of its opaqueness. It's a question of the material that is used that ultimately doesn't have that transparency within it. So having that metal uh, gate is more of a deterrent, as we've heard, to, um, to uh, vandalism in particular, but robberies especially, that it, it makes it um, visually more you know, unappealing for somebody who's driving by or, or is looking to commit ultimately a crime of opportunity that they'll that they will move on from a, from that location because they'll see that there's a you know a hardened gate entry that um, is less easy to get through um, <clears throat> you know thinking about that it's it's it, so you know I guess my understanding is is the background for the laws is that they're you know striving to make the the streetscape visually appealing but it's that that very visual appeal that is, I guess, luring people to vandalize or or uh, rob the businesses. Uh, so I know the supervisor has been active on this issue, but it sort of begs the question of um, why they have to go to that extent anyways uh, to give themselves that level of, of protection. Uh, I know that's not within the scope of this legislation, but I'd, I'd be remiss to not point it out. Uh, what is it about cannabis in particular versus all the other kinds of businesses uh, that attracted its own legislation? Well, as I understand it, I think it's, it's because of its, I mean, for one, I think it's the perception of it as a, 
uh, high cash, cash mm. only business. Okay. So the ability to have cash on hand at the location, I think, makes it susceptible. I think the second part is just the perception that it's also, you know, while it is, you know, legal within California, it's not legal throughout the United States. So it's a opportunity. It's a it's a potential opportunity site to to commit a robbery at a high cash business where their ability to report um, may be more compromised by the difference between the you know the state and the federal um, you know laws that govern it. Um, what happens at the end of three years? Do they got to take them down? Is the permit expires or? Well, they have to apply for a permit. So they have. So we put a timeline around that they have to be able to get a permit within a three-year period. Okay. Um, or else, um, at that point, they would, you know, not be able to do it. So it's something we could certainly consider in the future about extending out that that requirement. But we wanted to kind of put more structure around, you know, the. The uh, permitting process, that frankly, has been, as you've noted, um, pretty much the wild, wild west of uh, of permitting. So the the permit once obtained is for as long as the business is in place. Yes, as long as they maintain the business in in maintain it in compliance okay. with the permit and do regular maintenance. Yes. Um, is there? Have you gotten any guidance from the city attorney or anybody else? Like, if the city later wanted to change direction, um, let's say. You know, they wanted the gates to be decorated or, uh, you know, look a certain way. Um, is there anything about this that would restrict movement um, by future legislators on how to make, how they wanted the, the streets, streetscape to look? Well, you bring up a, re so this is one of those things when you get involved in legislation, you learn more than you ever expected to. So what I learned through this is that um, there are, pretty strict rules that govern, like if you wanted to do a mural or you wanted to do something on your roll down gate, um, you have to be very clear, it can't be an advertisement for the business because that is another planning code issue mm -hmm. um, related that could bring a small business owner into basically an enforcement action based on mm -hmm. having an unauthorized sign. Mm -hmm. So you can, so there are ways, and I think it's important for the small business community to know about um, the, the do's and don'ts of, of muraling and signage on these respective roll-down gates. Um, yeah, I think the question I'm asking is a different one, though. Um, okay. So uh, you, let's say you get the op opaque uh, roll-down gates. Um, great. So uh, now you've, you've introduced a level of safety and, and security that's clearly helpful. Uh, you know, now let's say like two, three years down the line, uh, now we want to take a, another look at the look and feel of the neighborhood. Is there anything about this legislation that would constrain a future policymaker from being able to say, well, you know, um, the gates, we get it, we understood why you got it, you got the permit, great. Uh, now we want you to paint flowers, you know, all up and down Grant Street or, you know, Valencia Street or something, uh, or, you know, we want you to uh, you know, put put up, uh, you know, grass, just give it a different texture or a different look, or we have, you know, some sort of vision on, on how the commercial district should look. Is there anything about this legislation that would um, keep a policy, future policymaker from making decisions about these permits? I think it would, because we're making a planning code amendment here that would ultimately allow for 
the use of those gates and those materials and that transparency level or lack of transparency level in this case. So if a future policymaker would want to go back and make a change to that, they would have to reckon with the fact that this legislative activity already took place. So usually what would that probably mean? Probably making it a non-conforming uh, complying use would probably be a likely outcome. Um, but ultimately, what we're trying to do here is twofold. One is to allow legally these cannabis businesses to be able to use a gate that currently is not allowable for them. And second is to you know, legalize, if you will, the uh, existing non-complying uses that are out there. So if a future policymaker wants to make another choice, they would have to reckon with the one that's before them here. Um, in your conversations with the planning department, uh, it mentions here in our notes that uh, the planning department's only enforcing on active businesses and not on vacant storefronts. Um, doesn't that seem sort of backwards? I mean, shouldn't we focus on the, the, the vacant storefronts as make them look nice since they're looking like that even when everybody's open for business? Uh, and the ones that are only rolled down when all the businesses are closed or should be a lower priority, plus we want to support those businesses. I'm just wondering if anybody's ever spoken to you guys about that part of it, uh, the, the enforcement priority. Well, my understanding is they basically told enforcement on you know, these, these businesses that have existing uh, non-compliant uses until we've had this legislative process kind of take, take action. So as I understand it, they're not taking um, any enforcement actions on those businesses for the moment uh, pending this, this legislation. Um, but your point's a good one. I mean, it also goes with the ABE program and other issues. It's like, you know, should you be doing work or allowing for things that occur during vacancy that um, ultimately aren't, um, that would be more disruptive when the business is open. And that's certainly a policy call for the city um, and for the agency, but that wasn't necessarily the focus of the legislation, except for the fact that it, it basically tolls um, that type of uh, enforcement action. So, um, <clears throat> just thinking about the aesthetics, um, and the design consideration going forward. Not, so first of all, I, I wanna make clear that I'm, I'm very receptive to the legislation and interested in, in expanding it, but also interested in, in uh, preserving future policymakers, um, any needs they may have to address sort of the aesthetic Landscape. I mean, this is one of the world's most beautiful cities, and obviously we want to, uh, I think right now we're dealing with a very particular set of, of problems and crises, but they could be different problems and crises in the future. Um, I'm wondering if you would uh, be willing to convey to the supervisor uh, some sort of interest in some sort of language that, something to the equivalent of, uh, uh, notwithstanding this exemption, uh, this legislation shall not be construed as preventing future policymakers from making um, aesthetic uh, suggestions or requirements uh, with regards to the um, opaque uh, materials and, and their visual display of. 
certainly would be open to that. I mean, I think for us, the issue isn't whether it's opaque or not, it's whether it um, prote better protects the businesses from, from robberies in particular. I think we, we, we definitely want to protect the businesses, yeah. 100%. Um, and, you know, I think uh, this commission would likely be very supportive of, of expanding this to other business types. Um, but preserving some optionality in the future for just the aesthetics of that so that we're just not locking the whole city into um, gray after gray after gray after gray. And, and inevitably, they get tagged. Uh, uh, you know, we certainly see that in, in other neighborhoods. And so pre preserving some optionality for what that actually looks like, uh, because we know that our graffiti resources are not necessarily, um, you know, both from the side of enforcement, which we don't want to do for the small businesses, and from the side of abatement, which uh, this commission has advocated for the city providing resources for uh, the direct abatement of graffiti. but. Obviously, there's only so much bandwidth and so much resources to deploy there. We don't want to overwhelm them um, with a lot of stuff. So um, I think a little, a little clause in there, just preserving some optionality for future policymakers, I think would be wise. Um, Noted. And uh, uh, you know, and how are are, are we, am I right in that we we were, would generally like to see this expanded to more businesses beyond just cannabis? Is that yeah, yeah, definitely. I just don't want to get in the position where now we make it more confusing for another, you know, another type of business to, to protect themselves in the same way, you know? Right. I, I, I think I just want to understand what the potential repercussions of enforcement would be, you know, um, and I mean, because I think order of operations is what we kind of need to figure out because I know for a gate, you you need to get it approved before you can install it. So there, people are getting flagged down, you know, like planning is telling people no, no, no all the time. And I think we need to solve for, for that, for businesses in, in general, like an ease of how do we pr protect ourselves and the city is helping us instead of saying no, they're being like, here are our options. And let's make sure that we're also not pigeonholing those options for some people and for some only types of gates. I think that's kind of what we're getting towards. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, Commissioner Herbert. Well, I, I also wanted to ask how much does one of those gates typically, typically run? I would imagine it's pretty expensive to, so not not everyone's going to be able to have a gate like that, you know. Uh, cannabis businesses do pretty well, and so I think they have, a, you know, more of a budget for that kind of thing. So I don't think that we're in danger of having a city full of grates, per se. Um, but I wanted to echo what you said, which is it, it would be great to open it to other businesses and just make the whole process more clear and to not focus on one type of business. Yeah, yeah. I guess the, the equity piece in me that I'm just trying to voice <clears throat> is like I've seen corner stores be denied out of city programs or like not be able to get into SF Shines or something like that because they don't understand this planning code and they have something that's not in compliant with it, whether it's their 
window coverings or their gate, you know? And so, like, I don't want to just be creating more um, barriers to, to, to people being in compliance. I want to make, you know, I want to go with this and make it easier for people to get into compliance, whether it's the city's codes, you know, shifting a little bit or whether it's um, the departments making it more accessible for people when they're trying to solve for, for um, you know, safety and, and uh, front covering if issues. So, I, I, yeah, I think I just don't want to, I want to understand what the repercussions are with, like, how planning is going to, like, are they going to start enforcing this more now that there's, you know, specific provisions um, going after people that aren't grandfathered in, you know, like, I'm just, I'm scared of the, and potential repercussions for enforcement, disproportionate enforcement, that's all. Right, uh, it, it, there is something a little challenging about this business is permanent, this business isn't, this business could be at some point in the future, this business just changed hands, so now it's no longer permanent, it's, it's, it, it is uh, a bit confusing. Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena. I, I just think for this particular business, because I, I, I work with several of these business like equity applicants, mm -hmm. it is the only business that is, they can't bank because of federal laws. Right. And criminals, you know, they that's where the money's at, right? Supposedly, right? right? right. And you can't catch a Fed case on this because it's still illegal. And by not having these gates and straight, it, it's it's these windows, these see-through portions <laughs> make them vulnerable where I could just put some hooks and yank the whole gate out. Right. Oh, I see. So there, there is some time essence because with the tax laws in the state, there's a perception you have a cannabis retail. You're making your balling. You're not. They're 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 dying, right? And they mm -hmm. keep getting robbed because right. it's so easy to rob them right now because mm -hmm. simple simple thing like a gate. Right. So that's the only reason I'm with you because I hate that we always have to deal and fix planning people's you know legislation from the 80s and you know if you wear a top hat then you can put a fence up but if you wear you know a suit then yeah. I get it on this point but yeah. this is one of those cases that it, we have to expedite because they're getting hit left and right left and right and they don't even report it at this point all right so that's that's where I see the urgency as is and Let's just do it for this particular, because they are an exception. They're the only ones that can't put their money in the bank. That's a very good point that they're uniquely vulnerable. Uh, appreciate you sharing that. Uh, Commissioner Dickerson. That was right along the lines of what I was going to share. So I ditto my fellow commissioner here. Um, also, I have a question. I, I went through, I, I got a roll down gate on my business. I'm not a cannabis business, but I went through the experience. And what I experienced was there was and correct me if I'm wrong, because this was some years ago. Um, permitting is subject to where the gate is positioned on the building. If I'm not mistaken, if it's internal or inside the wall of the building, the permitting is not, it, it's different if you have to have it done, put on the outside exterior part of the building. So with those differences, um, how would that be, I mean, just getting permitting in itself, just, I mean, it's not just you go, you buy a gate, you put it on. If it's on the exterior, if, it, if I'm not mistaken, you correct me if I'm wrong, don't you have to have a permit for it if it's on the external part of the building? You're absolutely correct. And then there's also an interaction with historic preservation as well. So 
depending on the historical nature of the property, that there, it may not be allowed to be able to have that type of gate. But um, yes, you are right that there is a difference between where the gate is situated on the property, um, whether it's on the interior or exterior. That does matter. Right, because I didn't have that problem because mine was an exterior roll-down gate. So they were like, oh, don't worry about it. You just you know, go do what you do. But I know my fellow merchants had that same thing. And so uh, that would probably eliminate some of the conflict that's happening with, you know. But regardless, the cannabis businesses need the security. That's, so that's the part that I really want to support. Sure. Thank you. Uh, Director Tang. Thank you. Just listening to the um, questions and some of the discussion, I just wanted to clarify, uh, maybe through Mr. Buckley, you can clarify for all of us, but so this legislation applies to existing cannabis businesses as well as new cannabis businesses and also non existing non-cannabis businesses. So I just want to make sure that was clear, but it's not um, new non-cannabis businesses. That, okay. Oh, that is uh, correct. I, I, all right. So now I'm a little... I didn't think I was confused, but now I am. <laughs> um, so it exists, it, it applies to existing cannabis and new cannabis. And it applies to existing businesses, but not new businesses. That, that is correct. But why the carve out just for new businesses? The carve out is that I think there are these larger concerns around extending it further into new businesses that I think we have to think through very thoughtfully about how we we address those. I mean, you yourself, President Laguana, have kind of up here talked about some of those concerns you have, aesthetics, uh, the level of transparency that would be needed for a new business. So these are businesses that have already added a gate. And so we are simply just legalizing that, you know, what they've done. Hmm. And so we do have to think through in the future how to approach new uh, gates that could be established. This ordinance does not do that. So it, I, I, I want to clarify that the caveat that I, or the, the clause that I was introducing, preserving some optionality, I didn't mean to uh, suggest that uh, they should have to change the materials or that uh, they should have to change the gate. I, I meant merely the visual appearance of the gate. Um, that, uh, you know, if it, at some point in the future we decide we want the streetscape to look a bit different, uh, that there's something that we could, you know, per, like let's say we wanted all the gates to be rainbow colored, right, in the Castro, or, you know, one can imagine. Uh, different things that we might want them to do. But I, I didn't mean to intend that they should have to rip the gates out and put in transparent gates or weaken the, the intent and thrust of, of the legislation, only that um, it shouldn't constrain uh, future policymakers about the, about the aesthetics of it, just the, the, the look and feel. Now, with that being said, um, I mean, I don't know. It sort of seems to me that if it's okay for existing businesses, it should be okay for new businesses. I don't understand why we're disadvantaging the newest businesses, which by definition will be the most vulnerable. And as I mentioned, I mean, this is why we're here. We want to get your feedback um, as a commission about what you would like to see within the legislation. Supervisor Safai is 
having those discussions. We're having them already with the fire department. We're going to uh, planning, I believe, on December the 8th. Um, we have a planning commission hearing then, so um, we expect that this is going to continue to be a discussion point. Um, so, you know, I just want to point that out that what you're raising now is certainly something that's been raised uh, by other departments as well. Sure. Um, Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena. I just had a question then because you got my head um, spinning now, President Laguana. <laughs> is, it, is it because maybe it'd be harder to get the legislation passed if new businesses were included? Would, is that the sentiment maybe? So, Commissioner, I mean, there, the, the planning department raised concerns about it being done for, for new businesses. I think the fire department also raised con similar concerns. Um, so we went with what, you know, at, we felt was a compromise, which is, you know, our intent was around, you know, cannabis businesses to be able to allow the roll down gates there. And then we were confronted with the issue that we have a lot of non-complying uh, uses within, you know, the city. So we decided to take them on into this legislation and to legalize those uses so that in the kind of ad addressing, I think, uh, Commissioner Zuzunas' issue, which was, well, if you do it for cannabis and then you have all these other businesses that are non-conforming, like, we don't want to create enforcement actions against those businesses. So we made the conscious choice to bring them over into this legislation. But where we kind of drew the line for now was the issue of, on a go-forward basis with new businesses that have not put those gates into place, um, whether or not to include those. They are not included in this legislation. Yeah, and just for clarity, let's say there's a vacant storefront. Lord knows there's none in San Francisco, right? But um, I go in, open a storefront. Am I considering new business because I'm a new business or the location's a new place? Like, what, what's the definition there? Like, it has an existing roll-up gate, scissor gate, but I'm a new business technically. I just registered. The permit dies with the business once once the business goes. The permit. Dies, so that right? that's that would be the consideration. So if this legislation is goes into effect in its current form, mm -hmm. and you're occupying a business with an existing gate, that that gate would be considered non-conforming and would be you'd be legally allowed to use it without any enforcement actions. I mean, with some caveat there, it depends on. I got it. No, the historic. It's in the entranceway, whether Absolutely. your building's historic, but in general, for the purposes of this discussion. And, and the reason why, commissioners, this is, I deal with this issue, unfortunately, so much. Like, it gets crazy. It gets so complicated for a gate. And it gets to a point where, like, I'm helping a small business right now, and they, they can't even open their store because this is holding them up as they pay lease because they don't want to get robbed, right? And there's encroachment, the historical blah, 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 da, da, da. you know, we got to see if Mars is aligned with Jupiter or something, like, over some gate stuff. So that's why, you know, I'm in support. Yeah. Um, hmm, a lot to think about. Um, any other thoughts before we go to public comment? Okay, uh, is there any public comment? There is. None. Double checking. Is there any public comment? <laughs> no? Okay. Um, you want to close public comment? Uh, cl uh, seeing no public comment, pub public comment is closed.
the kinds of aesthetics I was thinking about was a mural. Um, we know in New York City, like they're phasing out the solid uh, roll down gates uh, because they attract graffiti. Um, there's parts of the city where um, graffiti is a, a sig significant problem. Um, I, you know, for all the reasons that Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena brought up, I'm, I'm supportive of the legislation. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't make that support conditional on my recommendation, but I think I, I would like to include that recommendation. Um, would everybody be amenable to a motion that included that as a recommendation but not as a condition? Good. <laughs> uh, so I mentioned that there should there should be some optionality for future policymakers, um, just regarding the look at, uh, look and feel of it. I don't want to make it conditional on it, like oh you got to do this or we don't support it, right? Because I, I hear what you say. We're in a you have a set of businesses that are uniquely vulnerable, and then there's the other businesses, and we don't want to tell them to like. It's, you know, they get it and you don't, you know, that kind of thing. And, and they seem to think they have the vote. So, uh, but I'd like to get the suggestion in there. I just don't want to make it our support conditional. Yeah? All right. So um, I will move that we approve the legislation as drafted um, with our recommendation. You got that, Carrie, right? Yeah. <clears throat> I might work with you on wording. But yes, right. <laughs> that works. Okay, motion to support the resolution and include a recommendation, but not contingent upon that. Yeah, not conditional. Not conditional. Yeah. Seconded by Commissioner Dickerson. Okay, I'll read the roll. Right, hang on one second before you do that. Did did you want to? I guess maybe to just include in our our comments that the commission would love to keep. Um, you know, abreast of the conversations with the departments and any um, enforcement, new enforcement activities that might be a result of this, we'd love to know. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd really be interested in hearing from the planning department about the, the triage and on enforcement, on why they're looking at it in the way that they're looking at it. Um, and I think that they're, I'd also be interested in hearing on how FIRE wants to, to solve for this, because I think that has relevance in other areas so I, I don't know it's like kind of hard to shoehorn it into this but we'll work on it afterwards I, yeah I think I just want to know if if the enforcement only happens before you get the gate or if it's happening after because I have heard businesses like getting pinged for this code from just advertisements on their windows you know and then not being able to have access to like programs and they don't even know that they're not in compliant you know so I just want to understand like if this is just going to be f around the gates or if now, <coughs> like, you know, we're going to have more of a close eye on, on businesses and their, like, signage or, you know, like, in their windows and people are, you know, like, I want to understand how this planning code actually, like, works in the wild, you know? So we would love to know how, how those conversations go with sure. and I'd be happy that, to that specific part of the regulation entity. 
I'd be happy to follow up with planning staff to get that information and, and through staff make sure that you can receive it. Because uh, at the top of my head, I, in terms of how they're enforcing elements of this, I'm not 100% um, sure, so I don't want to state it. But we can make sure to follow up on it. Okay. Wait, are we ready to read the roll? We are. Okay. Commissioner Carter is absent. Commissioner Dickerson? Yes. Commissioner Herbert? Yes. Commissioner Huey is absent. President Laguana? Yes. Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena? Yes. And Vice President Zizunas? Yes. Motion passes. Thank you. Thank Appreciate you, Commissioners. Thank you. Next item, please. Item four, shared spaces program update. This is a discussion item. The commission will hear an update from the shared spaces program, including updated information on the transition from the pandemic program to the legislated program. Presenting today, we have Robin Abad, director of the shared spaces program, joined by Monica Minowich of SFMTA, and I believe we have Gregory Slocum with um, DPW on the phone. Great. <clears throat> We've prepared just a few visuals to get us started. Great. Um, good evening, Commissioners. Robin Avad Acabillo with the Shared Spaces Program. It's very uh, wonderful to be with you in person and back at the Commission that has, uh, I think, come out and supported us the most actively and been in the most engaged. Uh, we'll start by just uh, giving a little bit of an update on where the program is statistically, how many cases we have in, um, with particular regard to the, the ongoing transition to a post-pandemic program. Uh, a little bit on how we are, have been handling education and outreach during this critical transition period. Uh, some information on resources and grants, some applications that are still open, um, and then as questions and answers. Uh, we don't uh, always uh, acknowledge everyone on the team. We just wanted to take a special moment tonight to um, put some faces to the name. Some commissioners, um, Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena in particular, are out in community all the time seeing these folks and, and helping us put together uh, outreach events. Um, and so just some salutations from our team here as we bear down on the holidays. So. Uh, earlier this summer, the program began accepting permit applications for post-pandemic permits, or otherwise uh, called legislated permits. So we've begun to visualize um, the share of the uh, caseload that um, our team manages um, that are specific to those who are seeking pandemic per uh, post-pandemic permits. Currently, we've received over 527, or approximately 527 post-pandemic permits. Those are all in process. That comprises about um, close to sort of uh, a third of uh, applications, uh, of pandemic applications. So a really strong showing from folks letting us know that they do want to continue with uh, a shared space after the pandemic. Sorry, Robin, could you go back just one slide? And help me, what am I looking at here again? Some of the, yes, so this is a week over week of the pandemic uh, program um, and uh, the number of applications that are in the cities, under the city's sort of oversight or management. So obviously since the pandemic started, there have been more and more shared spaces out on the street. The key kind of color to look at here is the, that red kind of top part of the, the chart. That bar. So those are folks who have submitted an application for a post-pandemic permit. They want to continue 
operating most likely a parklet, um, most applications are parklets, um, on or after April 1st, 2023. So, if, uh, and then why, what's the drop off in August and September? Is that just an artifact or what am I looking at? Yeah, that is a data kind of reporting uh, issue that we are trying to rectify. So okay. Okay. we didn't have, you know, 2,000 shared spaces disappear off this street. Yeah, I, I was just trying to wrap my head around that yeah. part of it. So, uh, so we're up to about uh, 500 post permit. That's post, right. Post pandemic permits. Submittals. Submitted, yes. but not approved. Correct. Okay. So great. staff teams are working through that process of um, uh, reviewing those applications, working with sponsors to ensure that their sites or the, their proposed sites will, um, you know, meet all of our safety and accessibility requirements and so forth. And then um, just. Uh, it looked like it was about 1,600. Is it, I thought it was 1,400. We have 1,400 parklets before this, I thought. Is it 1,600 or 1,400? At I peak, we had about 1,260. 1,260. Parklets. Okay. Uh, you say parklets. So these permits include things besides parklets. A minority of those 527 applications that we've received um, are for things like sidewalk tables and chairs and merchandising. Okay, got it. A handful of other types of applications. That's correct. So we're uh, somewhere between a third and a half. Yes. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, there are also many active Just Add Music permits. Um, out there. These are um, entertainment permits for folks uh, to be activating uh, shared spaces. These will be transitioning post-pandemic to um, another, a number of other permit types that the Entertainment Commission um, has and were also sort of amended and broadened through the Small Business Recovery Act from earlier this year. And our team is working with those um, those operators who have entertainment in their parklets or in their in their lots and other shared spaces to keep that, um, those offerings at their sites. We've talked about the storytelling campaign uh, that shared spaces has. It's principally sort of put out through social media and anytime we're before your commission or others, we uh, would like to lift this up and also invite nominations for shared spaces heroes. Um, one of the, I think, most incredible parts of the experience of steering this effort for the city are all of the stories that we hear from small business owners. You know, so many of these folks have incredible backgrounds, they have incredible reasons and, and really compelling stories for why they became small business owners in San Francisco and we want to celebrate folks who are doing that. So um, if any, to anyone who's listening, tuning into commission today and um, commissioners who are here, if you have any nominations, please email us. We will go out, we'll take a portrait, we'll do a little bit of uh, story core light. Um, likewise for shared spaces um, in general, uh, we love to highlight different ways that community groups, small business owners, and others are making use of the outdoors. Of course, there are many parklets, that, but there are many other types of public spaces that are really providing an asset to communities, and we love to share those stories as part of the success of this program as well. I'll talk a little bit about grants before I hand it over to my colleague, Monica Munowicz, um, to, talk, uh, to, to take us through the presentation. 
we are currently still accepting applications for shared spaces, completion, or compliance grants. These are aimed at small business owners who intend to operate a uh, parklet, in particular after the pandemic program sunsets at the end of March, um, especially those who um, may need to make modifications, um, purchase more materials, et cetera, related to accessibility and safety changes. That application's open at uh, sf.gov slash shared dash spaces dash equity. Also, just a, um, another quick, quick reminder about how the city is um, doing intake and considering uh, how we make selections for those grants. We are, of course, looking at neighborhoods and geographies that were hardest hit by COVID-19, as, as well as areas of vulnerability as defined by the Department of Public Health. These are geographies where um, we have um, high uh, density of, of seniors, youth, linguistically isolated households, and, and other vulnerable, vulnerable populations. The shared spaces grants aren't the only types of assistance that are available to small businesses. As we know, SF Shines is um, another opportunity that small businesses can avail themselves of to um, address other issues or um, other needs that they might have at their businesses. For example, um, ADA accessible entrances or other internal tenant improvements. So in concert with a shared spaces grant, which would help with the outdoor facility, the city has a number of tools uh, um, and programs in place to support folks. And with that, I'll turn it over to Monica Munowicz, Deputy Program Manager, um, to take us through the rest of the presentation. Thank you, Robin. Good evening, Commissioners. Um, so just to transition to think a little bit more about timeline and where we are in our process and transition to the codified program, um, this whole year we've been accepting applications issuing notices or you know, working with businesses on educating around what they need to, to complete. And not until January 15th is when they'll actually do. So that's our, our newest deadline. Um, it is a deadline. We encourage people to apply as soon as possible. Um, but that is that latest time. We want to see that um, January 15th. And then um, we'll be working to issue those so that they're ready um, when the pandemic permit ends March 23. Yeah, no, thank you, I should have done um, So just to walk through the timeline, this is a newer graphic we put together to really dig into what comes after January or actually whatever, what happens after we receive an application, just to sort of share the amounts amount of work that we, we go through, what that looks like and why we really encourage people to apply as soon as possible. So basically, when we receive your application, um, we review for completeness, we review your site plan, and we get back to businesses with if we need additional information, like an updated site plan. Um, when is, once that's approved by both the SFMTA and Public Works, both departments review every permit, every parklet permit. Um, you are get, you're given sort of preliminary inspection, a notice, a 10-day notice that you have to um, complete, and at the end of that 10-day notice, if everything is okay, you get a conditional permit to build. So maybe you're building a new parklet, you're starting from scratch, or you're even just making the revisions. That happens after that point when you have this conditional permit. Um, 
you let us know when, the com when that's complete and we'll do an after construction visit. Public Works will come out, visit your site, check off, yes, you meet everything that you've, um, what was on paper from your application, you've built in the field, and at that point, you get your actual app permit application, or sorry, your permit and your site signage. Um, we have branded shared spaces signage that everyone will get um, upon completion. So that's all the steps that sort of after we get it in hand. Um, so hoping to avoid that avalanche in January um, to really have that customer service that we could work business, have that, all that back and forth, questions about site plans, question about design regulations, um, that both Public Works and MTA are here to offer to businesses. So just wanted to sort of walk back through that, happy to go back to that, because I know that's a lot of detail. Um, just a bit on coordinating enforcement. I know you all, I think, have heard of this before, our compliance advisories, which is our, our document that all businesses will get that consolidates all the public works, fire department, accessibility, MTA requirements, all in one document. Um, so we're rolling these out. Every business will get a, again, a unique bespoke to their business um, enforcement, coordinated enforcement document with this information. That way they have it in hand and can make an informed decision about um, their plans to transition over to the codified program. So just a quick shout out to that immense amount of work and hopefully value add to businesses as they're receiving them. Um, this is really exciting, I have to share this. Um, we have these two public service announcements ready and we are going to play them for you right now. Such a treat. Um, we have two ready. Um, Annie Yalon, the communications um, program deputy, um, and a, a wonderful team of folks put, helped put these together, and it was an enormous undertaking, and just so proud of this work. Um, there's a third one coming out um, in partnership with MOD, Mayor's Office of Disability, focus on accessibility, but the two that we have ready to share today, one is on emergency and fire access, and one is safety, visibility at intersections. Um, so I'm told I can play them, just give me a So this is like a release? This is like a release part, yes, yes, <laughs> VIP. I'm waiting for the dramatic voice. <laughs> San Francisco. No big deal. <laughs> <laughs> Not what I want in my parklet. <laughs> Keeping us on our toes. Um, Rum's going to help with sound. Sorry, one second. Headphones, maybe? <laughs> Try speakers. It's worth it, I promise. So and they're that short. people driving vehicles, people walking, and people biking can... Shared spaces have transformed San Francisco's streets and sidewalks. 
Local business communities are more resilient and our neighborhood centers are more vibrant and lively. Sidewalks and parking lanes can be used for outdoor seating, dining, merchandising, and other community activities. We're counting on operators of shared spaces to ensure their sites are safe and accessible for all. Hello, San Francisco. I love it when I can cross the street in our beautiful city and not have to worry whether cars can see me. And I want me and my grandma to be safe when we do. We all want to be safe. That's why our city is making sure curb areas near street corners are clear of parked cars and any other structures so that people driving vehicles, people walking, and people biking can all see each other at the intersection. If cars or parklets are too close to the crosswalk, drivers can't see who is about to cross the street. It's a proven way to prevent traffic crashes. We have way too many crashes and fatalities in our city. These updates to the Shared Spaces program will help to ensure safety and accessibility for everyone so we can all enjoy these public spaces. More information is available at sf.gov slash shared spaces. <clears throat> Shared spaces have transformed San Francisco's streets and sidewalks. Local business communities are more resilient and our neighborhood centers are more vibrant and lively. Sidewalks and parking lanes can be used for outdoor seating, dining, merchandising, and other community activities. We're counting on operators of shared spaces to ensure their sites are safe and accessible for all. When paramedics, firefighters, and other first responders arrive at a scene, they need clear visual access to see the building entrances, exits, and storefront windows from the street. That means parklets should be transparent in the areas above 42 inches above the sidewalk level. It's best if these areas are totally unobstructed, but transparent materials may be okay. You can check with fire department staff to make sure your site meets visibility requirements. Emergency response crews and their equipment also need to move easily between street, sidewalk, and buildings, especially when they are using medical gurneys, ladders, and other firefighting tools. That means that parklet structures need a three-foot wide emergency access gap every 20 feet, as well as a setback of three feet from the ends of marked parking spaces. Emergency access gaps need to be open to the sky without obstructions like canopies, roofs, or cables, and should always be clear of tables, chairs, planters, and other furnishings. Emergency responders need to use ladders to reach windows and roofs of buildings, and the ladders need unobstructed overhead clearance and room to be placed at a 72-degree angle against the building. Clearance is also needed around these ladders to move equipment and people safely up and down. So not all parklets can have roofs and canopies, depending on the width of the sidewalk in your area. Please make sure that your electrical cables are hung so that they're out of the way, and if strung from the building to the shared space structure, they can easily be pulled down by firefighters. 
Cable connections need to be powered from an outdoor rated receptacle in the building facade because hardwired connections are much more difficult to disconnect quickly. These updates to the Shared Spaces program will help to ensure safety and accessibility for everyone so we can all enjoy these public spaces. More information is available at sf.gov slash shared spaces. Great. Who, who got the star turn on the, on the first one? Who's, whose kid was that? Oh, oh dear. we like went through a whole thing to try to get children. It was, I offered one of my own, but Annie ended up getting, do you know? I believe a, uh, a, the child of someone who works at the Office of Economic and Workforce Development volunteered. Okay. <laughs> oh but it was Annie's mom in one of them, is that right? I don't know. Some VIP. But, but we're keeping the royalties, right? They signed everything <laughs> yeah. over. Um, did, did we get the release and all that stuff? Yeah, goodies. Um, this is the VIP party. They, so, they did excellent, by the way. You can pass that on. Thank you. And these are all available online if you haven't seen them before. <coughs> Please share those links out. I think they're a wonderful resource to really digest some complex information in a more fun manner than, like, than us presenting all the time. So with us presenting, a few last things we wanted to share. I heard there was, um, we understood there may have been some questions or an opportunity to clarify some points around accessibility and emergency fire access. Um, um, actually propane heaters. So just to go over these again, um, I think if you haven't seen them before as a reminder, um, the requirement for accessibility is that there must be within the platform, um, it must be even with the sidewalk um, or an equivalent ADA facility um, on, on the sidewalk. So perhaps not in the parklet um, itself. So we need to see public works checks for one of these two things. Happy to elaborate on that, but at a high level, um, that's what we look for. Um, and then the quickly on the on the propane heaters, um, yes, they cannot be underneath this flammable structure, very dangerous. Um, they must have a five foot clearance. So this is not electric heaters, we're talking about propane, um, needs that clearance. Um, this is what that looks like. Obviously there's no roof here, so no, five feet, totally clear, totally fine. Um, here's a photo of one right underneath a structure. This would not be okay. Um, and really electric heaters are the way to go. There's a lot of great technology out there, um, easy to use. Another one, um, sight lines above 42 inches. Um, so this shows here sort of the importance of an emergency responder being able to get to a parklet and see clearly to the sidewalk, see in the parklet, see to the building. Um, so anything above 42 inches um, needs to be visible. Good example here. Um, and yeah, this sort of further elaborates that point, um, this diagram, as well as some other emergency access requirements like the three foot gap um, in the middle, three foot setback on the end, three foot in the middle has to be open to the sky um, as demonstrated from our wonderful video. Um, so now Robin will round us out with some public education updates. Thank you, Monica, and thank you, commissioners, for the, the kind words about the PSAs. Those can be seen at sf.gov slash shared spaces PSAs. So for folks who are also listening and want to look those up, the accessibility one will be posted this week. Um, we recognize that this is a really um, important 
period and time to do some very intensive public education, working directly with Parklet operators um, to understand um, the nuanced rules, also to su provide support around how to prepare an actual site plan, how to prepare a permit application submittal. The, uh, the submittal itself is actually vastly simplified from how it was, compared to how it was uh, pre-COVID. Now it's a digital web form that takes about 10 minutes to fill out, provided that you have all your materials assembled and the only requirement for a drawing is a very simple site plan. It does not need to be to scale. It does not need to be prepared by an architect. Whereas pre-COVID, those were the expectations the city had for doing parklet intake applications. So we really are endeavoring to lower barriers to participation. Part of that has also meant that we've been out in community. Um, we have been holding uh, town halls as well as walks uh, with supervisors in neighborhood to meet with uh, operators to bring technical staff out into the field. We've completed these site walks, these neighborhood walks in the Mission, um, Outer Mission, um, the Excelsior Bayview, North Beach, Richmond. We have a number of other neighborhoods that um, are scheduled, and these will continue on through the uh, early calendar year. So if any of the commissioners want shared spaces team, technical team to show up in your neighborhood, we're definitely here for that, providing that kind of support. We've also been aiming trainings at builders, architects, general contractors, the folks in our larger business community who are actually making these shared spaces. This is probably one of the single largest ways that we can impact quality and consistency and safety for the parklet population at large moving forward. Um, so what we are doing after uh, GCs and architects and designers attend a city-sponsored training is we're actually listing the names of folks who have completed a training on the Shared Spaces website. Um, so um, this is potentially one way to ensure that folks who are seeking expertise, if that's the way they want to go about building their parklet as a small business owner, um, can access a list of folks who uh, you know, have gone, again, through a city training. So uh, we have had four of these so far, um, and we will continue to have, pardon me, we've had three of these so far, and we will continue to have these trainings um, through the, the calendar year to help as many folks as possible prepare. We also have a, a large digital footprint, as folks know. We have uh, bulletins, and through our social media channels and other digital channels are continually circulating information and, and resources. So with that, uh, that concludes our formal presentation and Monica, Gregory, and I are available for questions. Great. Uh, commissioners, <coughs> Commissioner Herbert. Thank you so much for the presentation. It was really well done. I had a question about um, the airflow issue. So currently, maybe you could speak to that. Just tell us what that what that regulation is at the moment. Absolutely. So um, at present, the County Department of Public Health has let us know that um, airflow in parklets is no longer a strict requirement. So um, whereas during much of the pandemic, um, you know, at least two sides of the parklet, usually the sidewalk side and the street side, um, we would want to see open to allow for that airflow and mitigation of community transmission of COVID-19. So um, that's, that is no longer a, um, a requirement. The visibility requirements, though, are still very much in place and will continue to be um, a key 
requirement and ensuring that our first responders can do their jobs efficiently and safely. Um, so visibility above 42 inches is required. That can mean no material at all, but of course there are many creative alternatives, material strategies. The fire department will inspect and sign off um, to uh, help operators know that the particular material that they've selected or that they want to use will satisfy their visibility requirements above 42 inches. And, and um, with, in re with regards to the materials, is there anywhere that operators can see a list of materials that are acceptable? Um, we've been thinking about how to help folks as best as possible with this. We really hesitate to prescribe materials or um, you know, uh, specify a material. There are a lot of different solutions, and the reality is also that some materials might perform well for a certain amount of time. They degrade, they get defaced. You know, there are all kinds of um, reasons why specifying a one material is, is maybe not necessarily the answer to the solution. So right now, um, really, we encourage folks to, as in the course of uh, submitting their parklet application and working with city staff to finalize kind of their their uh, remodeling plans to work with the fire department. They are absolutely here to help folks make the the choice that's right for their site um, and to evaluate maybe the material that they might already have up. Um, they might ask you to switch it out. They might let you know that you know given the conditions on the street that that particular material is okay. Mm. So I mean, San Francisco is a really windy city, so. As a parklet owner, I, I like to have some protection for my patrons. Uh, and we use plexiglass. Is that something that would be acceptable? I think what we've seen with the use of plexiglass is that um, you know the it's degradation over time with exposure to UV and then also um, you know the issues that we have um, on our streets with uh, graffiti and defacement and scratching that it doesn't end up a lot of the times performing all that well or consistently over time mm -hmm. so um, I think you know folks will have to be very diligent about keeping it clean replacing panels that might have gotten you know super scratched um, it's it's also difficult material to keep clean because a lot of you know cleaning uh, products actually end up marring and um, clouding the surface of um, of plexi. So I think that the objective is just to make sure that you can see through it at all times, and that might mean with a, a substance like plexiglass that you're having to replace it more often than other types of material. So the corrugated, opaque material that a lot of people are using is not allowed, or. We've also seen, and unfortunately, the fire marshal or um, uh, and his team weren't able to join us this evening to speak to this. We've seen that the fire marshal's office does not prefer, you know, uh, the corrugated uh, plastic material either because it is not as um, transparent uh, as they would like it to be. Um, it does, you know, blur sight lines and um, if the objective is for a firefighter upon arriving on scene or a paramedic to immediately see building entrances to immediately be able to look through the parklet and see where the landings for fire escapes are where 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 st standpipe sprinklers are and so forth you know uh, corrugated plastic doesn't really allow for that right it's it's a pretty while it does let light through it's not a transparent material material per se so for folks who are 
currently using corrugated plastic or contemplating that, I would expect that the fire marshal's office would end up asking you to switch it out for something else. So the, the three-foot space in the middle of the parklet, um, is, is, it, is that just an access point for the fire department? Or it helps with visibility as well? Both of those things are true, <laughs> Commissioner Herbert. Yeah, mm -hmm. the, um, the three-foot wide, clear to the sky, emergency access gap, gap or safety gap that's required if a parklet is 20 feet or longer. It's not required if your parklet structure is less than 20 feet long. But if you start getting into installations where they are longer, these access gaps are required. And as we saw in the public service announcement, that's to allow gurneys, ladders, other firefighting equipment, and so forth to pass easily between the rig on the street and the sidewalk in the building. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I also had a question about um, the grants and how easily accessible they are to everybody. I think a lot of people haven't applied for them yet. And a lot of uh, operators are trying to become compliant. Uh, so I would just make the suggestion that the, the permit fees be deferred for a year to give everybody the opportunity to comply. Um, because I think for two parklets, it's something like $4,500, which can be prohibitive. <clears throat> is, that, is that on page 80 or 81 or is that? Um, sure. Yeah. I'm sorry, could you repeat the, the last question, Commissioner? Um, on the whole, on your whole pamphlet, I think it's 80, page 80 to 81, there's something there. The fee schedule for parklets is in the shared spaces manual, and I, uh -huh. I don't recall what page it's on, um, okay. but the manual is available at sf.gov slash shared dash spaces dash manual, and it does have this uh, chart in it uh, that details uh, permit application fees as well as ongoing annual business license fees. The, I should um, mention that parklet permits through the end of the pandemic are free, right? There's no permit fee associated with them. The soonest that an assessment fee would be, um, or a permit fee would be assessed is in April um, of this year. And so that would probably go on your unified license bill um, for you know this coming year. Uh, for fees to be waived, uh, the Board of Supervisors would need to take action to suspend or delay the uh, those assessment of those fees mm -hmm. um, beyond April 2023 when the pandemic program sunsets and the legislative program initiates. Okay, because I think a lot of parklets were built to be temporary structures, so it, it's going to be pretty costly for most people to build. I mean, I'm, I'm saying they it's good to have safe structures, um, but it's going to cost a lot. It's going to be prohibitive to have like a, you know, whatever it is, $1,500 or $3,000 on top of that. So it would be helpful as people are kind of um, settling in and, and trying to comply. I, my suggestion would be to defer the, the parklet fees. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> Director Tang. Oh, thank you. Just relaying some questions I've also heard from the community and to clarify. Um, but first, I just want to thank you all for extending the deadline for the applications to January of 2023. I think that's critical. Um, so uh, you mentioned the airflow guidelines and how the county Department of Public Health is no longer requiring the 
airflow, I guess about 42 inches. Um, so uh, is that going to be updated in the design guideline pamphlet then? Because I think currently it still says the old version where basically you need to have two sides clear above 42 inches. Uh, thank you for calling that out, Director Tang. We will look at the current version of the Shared Spaces Manual and ensure that, um, that that's no longer articulated there. Um, thank you. Okay. It shouldn't be, but if it is, it needs to be modified. Okay, great, because I could have sworn I read the other day. Um, anyway, so that would be great to, to update. Um, the other thing is just to clarify, um, I appreciated your slide about um, accessibility. So if you have a shared space and you also have sidewalk dining tables and chairs, you do not need to have an accessible um, table or seating at both areas. You just need to pick one or the other. Is that right? That's the current policy, yes. Okay. Okay, and then lastly, I heard some questions about the propane heaters, um, and based on some experience, I guess, from some inspectors that might have gone out, so just wanted to know if anything changed. Um, is there a limit per linear like um, uh, distance uh, for how many propane heaters a parklet can have, or has anything changed, essentially, about propane heaters? Um, I regret I, I can't answer that question with complete confidence. The propane heaters are um, a separate permit. Actually, each propane heater requires a permit from, from uh, an operational permit from the fire department. So um, for operators who have had propane heaters, uh, they, you know, folks know this or who are thinking of, you know, um, including them in their shared spaces build out, um, they'll need to, to get that advice from the fire department. So I don't know if there's a a specific um, like quota or per linear foot parameter. Um, I'd have to defer the fire marshal's office on that. Okay, um, it would be great if we could clarify that and then if, if anything has changed to just make sure it's also in the updated design guidelines. All right, thank you. Also, sorry, uh, President Laguana, uh, Gregory Slocum from the Department of Public Works is dialing in and I just wanted to see if there Gregory was there anything in our responses to the question so far that you might want to um, elaborate upon hi good evening um, just for clarity for the legislative program that is uh, occupancies April 1st 2023 and beyond you would need accessible seating for all parklets within all parklets and you would need accessory you would need accessible seating for a sidewalk cafe tables and chairs permit i think currently they've allowed some complimentary accessibility therein but um for a permanent ongoing legislated permit you would need to provide accessibility in both that's all okay so it's not either or it's both that's right, President Laguana. thank you for the clarification greg so currently the current policy is during the pandemic that the accessible facility can be on the sidewalk, a, a table and chair set up perhaps adjacent to the parklet or within close proximity to, but right, um, code that requires an accessible facility on the parklet will kick in as of April. That was um, a requirement that has actually always been part of our parklet program for the 10 plus years and was relaxed during the pandemic. Got it. 
Uh, go ahead, please. Oh, sorry, continue. if I may just follow up then. Um, may I ask why it is, um, is there a legal requirement that we have to have it in both spaces? Only because, you know, I'm thinking about equivalent facilitation, you know, in general for businesses and, and you can, you know, offer um, almost same service in a, in a different format. And so I'm just wondering why the either or wouldn't work permanently going forward. That is so. It, this has been the sort of uh, predominating interpretation of how ADA code would apply to parklets by our city's accessibility coordinator. So um, I, I can't speak to the legal, state, and federal sort of ADA legalities specifically, but we can certainly um, engage MOD and the ADC if if this is a topic that we want to get um, dig into a little bit. And I think it's a, a huge issue, uh, you know, right now, but um, probably something worth having conversation about in the future. And, you know, we, we can <clears throat> uh, certainly continue that one. But um, I think if that's the expectation, if people are going to be cited for that, then we want to make sure that there's consistency between the outreach um, in the videos and the manual. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, it, it sounds like something that uh, uh, certainly we could have a couple more conversations about before we really uh, lock it in. Um, I have a couple com uh, questions myself. So uh, currently under the propane heater, is there any limits on the, the maximum number of heaters they can have? Um, again, I, I wouldn't be able to answer that. Um, okay. The fire marshal and fire code may have some specific parameters around that, but I myself am not uh, aware of them. We'll, we'll talk to the fire marshal about. <clears throat> okay. Um, and when you have that opportunity, and, and maybe we can set up a meeting and, and they can join us um, at some point in the future, we can find a time that works for everybody. But uh, is there any difference with, you know, I've been in some restaurants where they have the floor heaters, you know, it's like a parabolic dish that you know, kind of points up, and actually, I think those work better sometimes than the top-down heaters. Um, is you know, one can like certainly you can see why it'd be problematic to have a tall propane heater right next to a wooden structure. Maybe less problematic for a floor heater. So I'm just wondering if if. Uh, the fire marshal has given any thought to the different kinds of heaters that are out there. As I understand it, the um, the key um, factor in the heating element is whether or not it involves open flame. So, a, you know, an upright mushroom heater, as they're sometimes called, or the pyramidal heaters that have you know a column of flame in the center, or low, you know, lower sitting units that still have open. As long as it has open flame, I think that's what triggers um, the the five foot clearance requirement um, and the fire marshal's office has you know reiterated repeatedly that any open flame heating element can't be under a canopy or a roof right it, essentially a combustible structure so um, I don't know President Laguana if the low you know the lower sitting units that you're talking about are open flame or if they're electrical but um, certainly, I mean they're propane. I've they're seen propane, the propane yeah. tanks, but yeah. like I, I, I don't see flames coming out of them the way that I see yeah. on on the upright heaters. So I, I don't know if the safety profile looks different, respective just solely to the roof, right? Like, you know, you can still be five <coughs> feet away from, say, the back wall, mm -hmm. 
but perhaps be within five feet of the roof, but now you're now there's five feet of vertical clearance, right? Or so like I guess, I guess is the, if are we envisioning the five uh, foot is a sphere around it, and if, if that's the case, then like perhaps the lower propane heaters could be a good solution. If it's, if it's only in a two-dimensional access, uh, I think you, I'm, I'm articulating where I'm going with it. I hope I'm yeah. getting it across. I know I'm garbling it, but. I understand, and I think it's a, it's a signal to us as program staff to loop back to the fire marshal's office to get more specificity about, you know, maybe some of the most common um, heating implements out there that are sort of commercially available and just distinguishing, you know, between them and then, yeah. you know, putting that information out through our, our education channels um, right. in short order. Um, you know, one thing I want to say at the start is, uh, you know, there is so much work and discussion and talk about all these different things, and I just want to, I should have said this at the beginning, but I just want to acknowledge and respect it was really great to see a picture of your whole team. Um, I, I, I'm really, I was very glad that you put that in there. It was nice to see all of them. Um, and I hope you'll convey to the team how, how grateful we are for uh, all the work that you do. Um, just, you know, it, it's a challenging program. It's a very dense city. You know, there's a lot of unprecedented things. People get, you know, very intense about this stuff in a lot of different directions. but. Overall, we do have a legal program. We're working through it. So um, I definitely want to like make sure that that's top of mind uh, for me. Um, the gorgeous, beautiful one-sheet compliance form, um, which I think is a work of art that should be uh, uh, instituted. Yes, uh, went, went right, there it is, right there. The, yeah, that form on the left um, should be instituted elsewhere throughout the city, in, in, in my opinion. Do we have an ETA on, on when it's, you know, people can expect to see this? I mean, obviously, the sooner they have a sense of what their compliance requirements are, the better. Yes. Um, in fact, uh, probably north of three-quarters of current pandemic parklet operators have a res already received a compliance advisory. Um, okay. as, as you know, there's you know, we have hundreds of these, and it, yep. um, at present, it's a manual operation to issue all of these. So we're near to wrapping up getting everyone these. Um, and we're wor also working on um, making it readily available just upon request. We're exploring some tech solutions to maybe allow parklet operators to just go and get it themselves without having to request one, oh, as well great. as mass distribution. I think it would be wonderful if, you know, say every month you could just get an updated compliance advisory. So. Oscar Hernandez Gomez, who is our team's lead on data and analytics, has been working on some uh, distribution solutions for this moving Great. forward. Great. Um, and then in terms of the 700 to 800, oh, my goodness. Uh, Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena, did you have something you wanted to say? It's okay. I was about to, you know, just he ignores me now. <laughs> Sorry. That's how our relationship is yeah. after four years. Right. At first. He was noticing me. Yeah. Bet he doesn't right. even know That's my right. color eyes. Right. But anyways, Robin, Monica, just outstanding. Your staff, I'm glad that you put up, like President Liguano said, because they're on the ground. I work with them. I, I just can't say enough. Like, I seriously, I appreciate y'all. Like, you, you make finally a city process just common sense. So, like, 
Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, I had I had a question and maybe even an ask. Um, the the waivers, right? The half waivers. So typically around the communities I serve, the permit fee runs around twenty five hundred with the waiver, which usually it applies to retail. The two million though, the cusp on that for our restaurants in our neighborhood, it, it's getting to the borderline where it's not, especially with inflation. And and this is listen where I'm going with this. Two million sometimes with the businesses, especially restaurants in our community that we're helping, they're only netting about 50 G's take home. I know it's high top line, but when they finally go down, restaurant businesses are not netting. And they've held a lot of applications. And, and thank you for the feedback, because I've been telling them, just submit, just submit, right? Some of our restaurants in our neighborhood, the 2,500 is going to be there like, eh, I don't think I'm going to do it. So I'm just giving you some feedback. If I don't know if we could either waive the fees like Commissioner Herbert said, or raise the threshold. And, and, and for retail, it doesn't matter, because none of at least in my community, retail is not hitting two million. But restaurants like taquerias, they hit two million. And especially with the inflation, where we're having this perfect storm of inflationary cost, and they have to like make these huge decisions. And I know 2,500 doesn't sound like a lot. But right now, especially because they're going to have to probably redo their parklets, and I know there's grants, and your outreach has been phenomenal that I just, you know, my constituency has asked me to voice that. So I'm voicing it and seeing what we can do there. Thank you for that feedback. Yes, so um, both a fee waiver or um, this half fee waiver um, would would need to be things that the board would need to consider and amend. Um, so for example, if we were to raise the threshold for when a business could qualify to get these fees cut in half, um, that, that is currently in the, the text of code, um, as are these numbers. So um, I'm, I'm hearing that that across the commission that that is you know a point of concern right now um, and yes uh, that would need to be something to be escalated if um, the commission and communities really feel like uh, it's something to be revisited uh, I wonder would a separate grant program um, keep keep uh, keep this out of uh, working with the existing parklet legislation like a, a like introduce new legislation that introduces a new grant program that has the effect of a half waiver. Um, maybe that might be a more efficient way to get there without reopening a can of worms. I think it's definitely something to ex explore and consider. I mean, you know, there is um, administration is absolutely a reality, um, you know, uh, when we're, we're dealing with volume. Um, and so just for scale, the current grants program that we have uh, would is, if everyone were to get a full award, would probably mean that we could touch about, I don't know, maybe about 400, 450 operators. So that's about a third, a little over a third of current operators. So if we were to talk about a grant program for a waiver, I mean, that would be a very significant um, item in the budget. So I think it, it's just, uh, you know, to, in, in the budget, the city's budget to, to put towards grants. And so I think some, we could do some analysis about how, you know, what might be more efficient and how we could have the, um, the best outcome, whether that's uh, revisiting this fee waiver threshold in code or setting up a whole, you know, grants program. There are 
potentially pluses and minuses to both approaches. Yep. Okay. Got it. Um, and then, um, you know, I, one suggestion uh, I had was, uh, you know, because we have to consider all these different uh, items that, that, that come up, the, the manual understandably tends to get longer and longer. Uh, but under shared spaces, we have what? Uh, there's there's uh, just add music, tables and chairs, street closures, parklets. Is there any other things that are under shared spaces besides those four? Currently, yes, on um, vacant lots or surface parking lots. That's right. Yes, so, quite a number of shared spaces. So a recommendation that I would have um, would be to break each of those out into separate manuals. Um, so if I'm wanting to open a parklet, I don't necessarily, I don't, I don't need to know anything about Just mm -hmm. Add Music or Vacant Lots. I can look at it later if I'm interested, but it's a little overwhelming, mm -hmm. if, especially if your English is a second language or your, you know, your reading skills are not so great, um, to have like a 100-plus page document um, so if we can whittle that down and break each program into a separate chunk, I think that that would make it a little more digestible for people just, okay, here's the par parklet program, and it's just the parklet program. And, you know, here's the uh, vacant lot program, and it's just the vacant lot program. And then you can, I don't know, it's just a suggestion, a, a, a thought. Um, oh, I'm sorry, Commissioner Herbert. Oh, hi again. Um, I, I'm confused by the... Um, fees, so I just wanted to clarify, for a commercial parklet, that would be a restaurant? Correct. Okay. Um, if the parklet is the size of one parking space, the fee is $3,000? That's right, for the first space. And if it's, <laughs> so if it's two spaces, it's 4500 That's correct. And then the annual fee on top of that is either 2000 or 1500 so you could be paying 4500 out the door just if you're taking up two parking spaces plus 2000 every year 2000 every year the initial permit fee is not assessed again year after year it's just the um, annual license fee mm -hmm. yeah but if it's two well, two spaces it'd be 4000 right Correct. It's per, that's right. That's per parking space. So it's two thousand per parking space. So that would be four thousand on an annual basis if you're grossing over two million. For for context, I think it might also be important to remember that before COVID, permit fees for parklets could approach eight thousand dollars or more on your first go. So part of what we tried to do, um, and what the board was sensitive, I think, about when uh, legislating is really coming up with a fee schedule that was more accessible than it had been before. Um, per, before the calculus for permit fees was driven by a cost recovery, you know, calculation for the cost of administration. We're not doing that anymore. The city is subsidizing heavily and investing heavily in the in the um, you know the cost that it takes to monitor the program, to run it, to make sure that we're doing um, the compliance work to keep things safe, et cetera. So um, that's, that's also just some additional context in, folks, in case folks want to know kind of where these numbers came from. It, it just seems like you'd be eliminating a lot of operators because they won't be able to afford to do this, if that makes any sense. I mean, it's, 
I guess it works both ways. You have you need to pay. I guess it's to pay for the program, and that's what the fees are for, for the parklets. Um, they partially subsidize the cost of running the program, okay. but not fully. We the city does not use a uh, cost recovery calculation anymore to set these. Oh, fees. gotcha. Okay, but so it's going to cost a lot of money to comply, and then on top of that, there are these fees, and then it just seems like a very expensive proposition that a lot of people probably, they may say, I just can't do this, especially like the little mom and pops. Um, it almost seems like it's a deterrent from building a parklet, I'm just saying. Yeah, if I have a few thoughts that came to mind. I just wanted to jump in and elaborate um, totally. It doesn't pencil out for everyone. Um, and when we, I know when we arbitrated and we were discussing sort of range of fees um, when we looked at like sort of market value of land, it was like, or space is like one way of thinking of the, how to charge for it is something like over $10,000. And so it was very much like a, a, a point to make this the one, two, and three so that hopefully it's not a barrier to entry, but it still may be to your point um, for some. I did want to call out, I think it's clear in here, but that the additional parking space is that, anyway, just in case that wasn't, is that second column. So it's not 2000 plus 2000 it's if for example or 3000 and 3000 for two spaces it's 3000 and for an additional space 1500 just in case that wasn't coming across clear and the last point i wanted just to clarify and put a plug for public parklets your question before about restaurants are they commercial that's true but i just want to make sure you understood that some restaurants could have a public parklet um you're just not doing dining like rest um private dining in it but a restaurant could have a public parklet and have coffee or um, cookies or whatever so just Pizza. to not have that distinction because that can oh, be a, it's a cheaper rate and that may be a better option for a business maybe you are a restaurant and maybe the 3000 is too steep so that's kind of why it's costed that way um, we love the idea of public parklets we want to see them continue so just a quick plug for that okay. I, I did have a sorry go ahead uh, no, go ahead, and then I'll come back. Yeah, I, I just had a quick question about the public parklets and, and the movable parklets. Have um, how uh, have we gotten any permits along those? Um, I do not know, President Laguana, if of the 527 post-pandemic permit applications we've received, if any of them are for. Do you know, Monica? One is movable. Oh, one is movable. So. Um, I would surmise that the vast majority of them are, or all of them are commercial parklets, and that one of them is movable versus fixed. It's interesting. I'd like to see more of the public parklets as well. So um, I, I, part of me wonders whether it's an outreach problem or if it's just not, you know, simply not viable for the business. But Regarding the movable, regarding fire restrictions, this specific, I think I had this conversation early on, 24th Street, because we have the parades. Is it all good? Because we had the parades and it was all good, but was that because it was kind of in this like emergency thing? I, I just need to know, because then our constituents should be applying for mobile or not. I, I don't know, I'm asking. Um, well, uh, so, um, Commissioner Ortiz-Cartagena refers to the fact that in some corridors, there's a really rich and vibrant, you know, seasonal parades and festivals and other ways that the streets used. And so that um, there's concern about fixed structures, like what most parklets look like now, um, 
sort of uh, compromising the ability for communities to, to hold and throw those events. And so um, that is one of the reasons that this movable parklet option was created. It wasn't an option before the pandemic. And um, some folks have chosen to do this because it is lighter weight. Um, it is definitely less capital intensive. It's less expensive to do. And it also gives the city um, and neighborhoods a lot more flexibility around the use of the street. So a movable commercial parklet is only intended to be out during your business hours and then struck and brought back inside outside of business hours. This means that outside of business hours, that curb can be used for loading. It can be used for short-term parking. There are all kinds of other needs and functions we have on, on streets that then that movable commercial parklet space could be you know, serving outside of business hours. And certainly, you know, on, on corridors where there are a lot of parades, I live in the Castro, we shut our street down all the time to have party out in the streets. You know, it, it could be wise for um, merchants associations or, you know, community benefit districts or just merchant groups to, you know, encourage maybe more movable installations rather than fixed ones. The city doesn't interfere or recommend or suggest that's really a decision for the operator and their community and their neighbors to make. But we really, I do think that it's a, a good solution and it's a good um, option that can help address a lot of the kind of issues and concerns we've seen around fixed parklets um, that have come up. So I'm hopeful that as we roll forward with the post-pandemic program, we'll see more of these and we'll see how they can be more adaptable and useful in different settings. Robin, I, specifically 24th, I actually have a question because I know the fire department, they need a, like a lane or something when you do these parades. And if they're not movable, like this year they let us, all these two years they let us have the parades, whatnot. But was that just because we're still under the COVID temporary thing? And that what my, my concern is, okay, so they apply, everything's all kosher as is, but then when the parade time comes, and they're really enforcing like the fire lane, that's what it's called. They have to have a fire lane for the parade. Then they'll say, well, we can't give you the permit for the parade then because you have parklets and the parklets gotta go. Like, that's what I'm trying to prevent. And I'm like asking for like assistance because I really don't know the answer. Yeah, um, thanks for that question. I'm not, I don't know if you happen to know if it was permitted by an ISCOT like special event permit or if it was permitted by shared, a shared spaces pandemic permit, but if, it, if we happen to know the parades were, because those could function before COVID, right? And we had the permitting mechanism for that through ISCOT. Um, that would tell me that, that would, it would be fine. Um, if it was permitted by a shared space, it's true that just like parklets, the roadway closures had different requirements during the pandemic and they are, will have like stricter requirements in a post, um, post pandemic and so, in that event, I wouldn't be able to speak with confidence of like if the fire department would um, in the future when permitting a future um, event on 24th Street through if it is a shared space, if they would not be able to permit that. I don't know if that's not helpful. So maybe, maybe not. We can follow up offline. Um, yeah, I know you mentioned that. this before. Yeah, like so if we get to with the fire department. That way, like when we're out in the corridor, we're telling people don't do it permanent, do a mobile because then right. it's going to trigger down the road. 
Um, I suspect, Commissioner Ortiz-Cartanev, that you're referring to like one-day parades or festivals. Um, those are definitely, even during the pandemic, were permitted through the Interdepartmental Staff Committee for Traffic and Transportation, or ISCOT. The fire department is a very active and uh, vital presence on that committee. Um, so if, if it worked with the current uh, fixed parklets on the street, then it sounds like it's probably okay. Um, yeah. Um, if they were for recurring street closures, those were permitted over the last three years through sh shared spaces. But, you know, if we're talking about events like Carnaval or, you know, other one-day things, fire would have been part of um, assessing if the street closure or the parade or the festival could happen with fixed parklets in place. So if they happened, I would think that that should be okay moving forward. Okay, great. Commissioner Herbert? I have more, <laughs> more questions. Sorry. Uh, by the way, this is a beautiful presentation. I just have to put that out there. So thank you. Um, so on page 1881, the, the permit approval process, um, do, do operators have to get their neighbor's permission? Uh, let's say you're in front of an apartment building, right? Like a maybe it's like an eight unit building. Do you have to get permission from, who do you have to get permission from? Like what's the radius or yeah. Sure. Um, thank you for asking that question. So I'll, I'll walk you through quickly the threshold and then who you need to get consent from. So the threshold or what triggers consent is if you're on a metered or a marked, a block that has marked spaces. Um, if that marked parking space is 50% or more into your neighbor's frontage, that is what triggers their consent. So marked parking, 50% or over. If it's not marked, so blocks that have no meters and no parking tees, um, even if it's at four inches over into the frontage, you need consent. So it's a, it's a lower trigger. So different triggers for metered blocks and unmetered blocks. And then who you're getting consent from is um, either the tenant or the property owner. Um, so either of those is fine is what the legislation um, clarifies and there is a specific document that has to be submitted. So we used to, during the pandemic, we would keep like intake like a letter on a napkin and there is actually like a more formal template. So that's how and who and how to submit them. So the timeline for getting an approval, are we, is it realistic the timeline that's here? Well, it just says 30 days, I think, um, for approval. I mean, if you're, if you're, contacting, I mean, just, yeah, just break it down for me. I'm, sure, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I'm wondering if we have that slide in this presentation that's what I'm thinking about. Um, so the 30 days, at least from the city side, starts really when we have a complete application. So once we have your consent letter, if that's required, once we have your site plan that has all the right information, then that 30 days sort of um, starts. Um, and then in terms, so I don't know if that answers your question, but in terms of what happens after that is this sort of timeline of after that sort of, I guess, part number two is like, it's complete. Okay, 30 days from here, we should be able to issue a permit. Um, that is a, a pretty ambitious, like there's a lot that has to happen there. Yeah. Um, and there are some caveats, um, but basically that's committing to MTA reviewing and approving, public works reviewing and approving and that's what we call sort of approved, approved on the on the intel on the inside. But that's mm -hmm. like we've approved your permit, but then those steps afterwards of like the public notice and actually getting to the place of getting your signage like can extend okay. past that. Um, 
there are caveats. I'll just explain. Like, if you're in a color curb and we need to relocate that color curb, that has to go through a legislative process that has a once a month hearing, and that like definitely does not follow within the 30 days. So those are that's what I mean by some caveats. But um, that's what's in the code, and that's what we endeavor um, once we have a complete application. Okay, because I, I, I'm looking at page 80 and 81. And there's a 30-day posting, and then there's a public hearing, and then so for existing parklets, they would just stay up until the process is finished. But any new parklets would have to go through this sort of. The existing parklets, sorry, the existing parklets, everyone has to go through this because an existing parklet is a pandemic parklet, right? So even if there's sure. something there, they're still stepping through the same process. Mm -hmm. They still have to do a 10-day public notice period. They still have to submit an application, have it reviewed, um, because we're telling, like, you're, are you okay? Do you have to shift? Do you have to make modifications? Mm -hmm. um, and then the process from there. Does that answer your question? Yes. Sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Sure. Okay, um, I think we've kept you guys here long enough tonight. So um, <clears throat> let's uh, see if there's any public comment. I don't see. Oh, yes, we do have one uh, one commenter. Great, commenter, please proceed. Hi. Hi. Good evening, everybody. This is Laurie Thomas from the GJRA, and I just want to. Um, Wait in and thank everybody for all their time and effort and Robin and Monica and Gregory and your team. Um, it's been great to work with everybody and I wanna thank everyone again for the January 15th um, uh, extension on the applications because there's a lot of confusion and questions and in San Francisco, nothing is easy as we know. So thanks you guys for doing that and we're here to help communicate. I do want to, um, and I'm happy to, to work with the team too this week if we need it, to just ask if we could get clarification on the airflow issue in the manual, that would be helpful. And then if there's anything we can share out pointing to any of the propane, we've been getting a lot of questions, especially with the colder weather, about any changes to propane because there's some rumors out there. Um, and anything on clarification, you know, would be helpful and we're, we're happy to share it because I know it's case by case and it's a lot of work. And also one last thing, we love the idea of businesses being able to request or somehow get a copy of compliance. I think that's an awesome idea, Robin, and that would take a lot of work off your team if we could go online and get it out of a database. So if there's any way we can help with that idea, we're 100% behind that. So Thank you guys again. I know it's been a long road, but it's really a critical, critical program for many of our members to, to stay cash positive here, especially with this you know, downturn potentially. We, we need all the seats we have, so thank you. Is there any other public comment? There is none. Seeing none, public comment is closed. Um, <clears throat> I'd re be remiss if I didn't make at least one goofy suggestion. Um, <laughs> and I've made this before, but... Um, uh, you know, our backyard gets really cold, and we just put some heated blankets out right. there with extension cords. And you know what? It it works fantastic. Like you, not even to cover you, just to sit on. It's basically just a butt warmer, but um, <laughs> it works great. So just put any restaurant people out there listening. Like that's another possible solution if if the uh, propane heaters isn't quite cutting it. Um, and there's somebody who makes, um, have you seen the benches that are heated? Mm -hmm. Oh, they're super expensive. I, I can't yeah. afford one, but um, 
They're really I, nice to sit I on. I forgot the name of them, but yeah, they're cool. They're, yeah, I mean, they're hot. They're yeah, hot. yeah, yeah, no, super comfortable. All right, um, thank you so much, Monica. Thank you, Robin. Thank you, Greg. Appreciate you, appreciate your team. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Next item, please. Item five, approval of draft meeting minutes, discussion and action item. Anybody have any questions or comments on the minutes? I read them, so does that mean I get to vote on them? Okay. Um, is she allowed to vote on them? I think she has to recuse. I had to recuse once if I wasn't here for a meeting. If you didn't read them. Oh, you read them? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm impressed. Just these ones. That's yeah. One of yeah, she knew. I didn't. Uh, is there any public comment on, on the minutes? There is none. I think none public comment is closed. Do we have a motion? Uh, oh, yeah, we have quorum. Motion to, yeah. I was going to say, go ahead. I motion that we uh, approve the meeting. Yeah, the minutes. Do we have a second? I'll second. <laughs> there we go. I wasn't really there. <laughs> I'll call the roll. Yep. Commissioner Carter's absent. Commissioner Dickerson. Your vote, Commissioner, Commissioner Dickerson. Commissioner Dickerson. <laughs> yes. Okay. Commissioner Herbert. Yes. Okay. Commissioner Huey's absent. President Laguana. Yes. Commissioner Ortiz at Cartagena is not here. And Vice President Zizunas. Yes. Motion passes. Great. Are there any members of the, oh, sorry, next item, please. Item six, general public comment. This is a discussion item. Are there any members of the public who'd like to make comments on items not on the agenda? Is there anybody present for public comment? There is one commenter. Okay. Commenter, please proceed. Hello, commissioners. I'm calling um, with regards to the Castro Theater issue, which was tabled by you in August. This uh, matter was brought before you by, by President Laguana after discussions privately that he, both he and Executive Director Tang had with the Castro Theater. I see you shaking your head, but this is very important to the community, um, particularly because this issue was brought up at the behest of uh, President Laguana, even though two months later, the Castro Business Emergence Association voted unanimously to not accept another Planet Entertainment's proposed changes to the 100-year-old Karish Castro Theater. Earlier, you spoke about the importance of the integral and special part of the Condor Club being part of the North Beach community, including their LGBTQ events. It is important that you realize that the Castro Theater is a vital, integral, and cherished part of the queer community in the Castro, and since uh, President Laguana was able to pull together a resolution with less than 72 hours notice for the public, it's important now that you consider, given that the Castro Merchants Association does not support AIDS, that you put something in your next meeting or the meeting after to put a resolution supporting the landmarking of the interior of the Castro Theater. If you are actually moving and acting with community input and community concerns and community uh, support, then you will act on this resolution that will be before the Historic Planning Commission on December 7th 
to landmark the interior of the Castro Theater. As one of your three criteria is to include the physical aspects and features of the business. The seats meet that criteria for the Castro Theater. It is not the job of President Laguana to call uh, anything but balls and strikes. You are throwing curveballs at the community when you only deal with another planet entertainment, go above and beyond uh, the business community in the Castro and the community itself. Thank you very much for your time and support, and I urge you to put a resolution before the Small Business Commission, before the Historical Planning Commission on December 7th, to your support of the landmarking of the interior of the Castro Theater, our last cherished large movie house, only movie house in San Francisco, and maintain a world-class venue in a world-class city. Thank you for your time and service. Thank you for your comment. Is there any other public comment? There's none. Okay, seeing none, public comment is closed. Next item, please. Item seven, director's report. This is a discussion item. All right, good evening, commissioners. Um, I'll start off with a quick reminder that we are not having a commission meeting on November 28th. That's uh, after Thanksgiving, so don't show up here. Um, and then also as we're approaching the holidays uh, before Thanksgiving, we're really hoping to drive more people to go to our local uh, businesses, small businesses in San Francisco and support them. So we are, um, you might have been familiar with a campaign called Shop and Dine in the 49. Uh, we are engaging in a, a slight rebranding. So Shop, Dine, SF, if we're keeping it very simple um, and on message to what we're trying to do uh, to support our local economy. So we're collecting um, all the different activities that are happening in commercial corridors. We're putting it all in one place on one website, which we plan to launch um, hopefully before Thanksgiving. So be on the lookout for that. Um, and hopefully we'll, um, we'll see more folks in our um, small businesses. Also mark your calendars for December 6th. Um, at City Hall, we will once again uh, be holding a local maker's um, holiday pop-up. So always a fun time um, and to uh, shop for the holidays. So December 6th. In terms of a legislative update, um, last week the Board of Supervisors adopted uh, legislation to extend and expand the first year free program. So that's really exciting. Just a quick reminder, it extends the program by one year. It raises the threshold um, for gross receipts by from two million to five million. Uh, it also, um, businesses do not have to be located on the ground floor. Previously they did, so that's also very exciting. Um, so if you're also a mobile food or whatnot, um, that this would apply to you. Um, and also we've worked with Supervisor Ronan's office and Treasurer and Tax Collector's office on expanding the types of permits that would qualify for these permit fee waivers, such as for catering, uh, mobile food, open flame permits. Those are just a few examples. And then um, for sidewalk sales during the holidays, Supervisor Stephanie has legislation pending at the board to uh, waive the permit fees if you want to um, display your merchandise on the sidewalk um, between December 25th through 7th, 27th, December 2nd through 4th, and also December 9th through 11th. 
Uh, and then also wanted to share that uh, Mayor Breed visited uh, West Portal last week with Supervisor Melgar to announce together um, the launch of community police ambassadors for West Portal Corridor. Uh, this was made possible through ad back funding that Supervisor Melgar uh, had put into the budget for retired police officers uh, to um, help enforce public safety. I believe that this is also in um, some other neighborhoods and really is pending um, availability of staffing and also if a supervisor put in some ad back funding. Uh, and then lastly, um, Commissioner Huey, I know she's not here today, but we did do a merchant walk together in Visitation Valley on Leland Avenue just to understand some of the issues and concerns that they have. So certainly want to welcome uh, any of you if you would like um, our office to join you on some walks and just to talk to some of the merchants and help them with projects. Um, we're open to that. So that is the end of my report. Great. Commissioners, any comments or questions on the report? Commissioner Herbert. It's great, thank you. That was a comment. Yeah, that's awesome. They do. Uh, is there any public comment on the director's report? There is none. Okay, seeing none, uh, public comment is closed. Next item, please. Item eight, commissioner discussion and new business. Okay, commissioners, do we have any new business? Commissioner Dickerson. live in that area um, and Ken and Kelly over at Mission Bay are doing a phenomenal phenomenal job so I want to give a big shout out mission yeah what did I say what, what is it I knew it was mission Ken and Kelly y'all knew I knew it was mission blue right <laughs> so we want to give a shout out to mission blue over in visitation Valley uh, for the work that they're doing um, over there on Leland um, also um, Bayview has been busy. Um, a lot of good stuff happening over there. I want to give, um, I think I did, I don't know, I'm not sure if I did. Sandra at um, Pumpkin's One uh, Beauty Bar that had the grand opening two weeks ago. And then we just had a soft opening for uh, What's the Scoop ice cream shop over there on Five, on Third Street. Um, and they had their soft opening. I was truly impressed. It is the cutest little coffee uh, ice cream shop. You got to go visit it. Very quaint, very cute. Talio's is open. I go get my Americano because I'm fasting. Yeah, so there, yeah, so uh, we have another, uh, but we're going to have the grand opening, I believe, this Thursday for uh, What's the Scoop, where we're going to have the ribbon cutting and all those good stuff, all that good stuff. So, very excited about all the businesses that are opening up over in the Bayview on 3rd. Yeah. Love it. Sorry, I'm, <laughs> I'm fading just a hair. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I just got back from Hawaii with my son late last night. So a um, little uh, uh, surfed out and sunburned and... Um, beat up and bruised and uh, ready to go to bed. Um, okay, uh, Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena. I just want to report back um, last Friday on Veterans Day with the San Francisco Lowrider Council, Glecha and OEWD, we threw a activation of Bart Plaza on 24th Street. We had a live band on one, a DJ on another. 
we um, did a lot of social media outlet to engage the small businesses from 23rd to 25th. It was a huge success. We drove a ton of business. People were coming out the bar plazas to music, people just jamming. It was a friend, family friendly event. My kids were there, a lot of little kids. So it was just fun to see space activated positive. And by activating space, you know, we got rid of some of the stuff that's been plaguing our city. So it was just positive energy. People going to las pupuserías, las taquerías, shopping local, and music, you know, and we had law enforcement there, and they were part of community, and they were engaging, and they were drinking ponche, and it was just fun. It was just fun. It was very, very low costing to do this. It was very low cost, and for at least three hours in the evening, we had a safe, fun space, and we brought in a ton of money to our local businesses, so... I just wanted to report, and we honored, you know, our Veterans Day. I didn't know um, you put a dish out. I, I didn't know, like, and so I learned something. It's kind of similar to, like, Day of the Dead, where you put, like, an ofrenda. So you do it, so we, we honored um, somebody that passed away in service, and that was cool. I learned, so it was just it was just cultural, and, you know, it was, you know, paying homage and respecting our country and the people that served and giving us this privilege for all the stuff we get to do because of their service, so. It was pretty cool. Great. Anybody else? Is there any public comment around the line? There are none. Okay. Seeing none, uh, public comment is closed. Next item, please. Item 9, adjournment. SFGovTB, please show the Office of Small Business slide. We will end with a reminder that the Small Business Commission is the official public forum to voice your opinions and concerns about policies that affect the economic vitality of small businesses in San Francisco, and that the Office of Small Business is the best place to get answers about doing business in San Francisco during the local emergency. If you need assistance with small business matters, continue to reach out to the Office of Small Business. Thank you. Meeting adjourned. <laughs>